You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up? It's Doc here chiming in. I want to tell you guys about a new podcast from the Rising Giants Network, and it's called Legendary Rock Stories. Ever thought of who were the bands that created the most important moments in rock history, where they come from, and how they climbed the greatness? This is what Legendary Rock Stories uncovers. It's a narrative-based show that looks into the rise of some of rock and metal's most legendary bands. In every season, the podcast looks into a particular band, its rise, and impact on music history. The first season is dedicated to metal titans Metallica. It's all told in a captivating and immersive way using narrative, sound effects, and oh yeah, some voice acting. So from playing small clubs to selling out stadiums across the world, check out Legendary Rock Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. X-Man Podcast. It's your boy Doc Coyle. Back with some more. Grinding out here. That's what I'm doing. That's how I, that's how I do's it. <sighs> yeah, guys, I don't really have much of a spiel this week. You know, it's been, you know, we've had some intense back and forth the last month and a half or so. It's been, it's been, it's been crazy. But I I I've I've nothing that crazy. The, the crazy thing going on right now is I have to shoot a film. Or just one little scene. It's like a cameo, or whatever. But the the director, I was like, oh, should I, uh, you know, shave my head? Should I, you know, grow my, what I, you know, should I have facial hair? He's like, oh, I'll just grow it out, and then we could figure it out. And to know my hair, you know, looks terrible in my face. I, I hate it. You know, there's all these men, you know, just manly men walking around with beards and beard oil, and you know, and they look correct. And I don't, you know, it just doesn't work for me. I don't know. Kind of sucks, you know. It doesn't even fill in all the way. You know, it's like patchy over here and doesn't connect over there. I don't know. It's just, I don't know if it's Native American in my background. I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe I just didn't eat enough Cheerios or something. I got nothing for you guys. But yeah, that's that, that's my biggest problem. Just itchy, annoying hair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, if you, know, you want to hear me talk some shit, you know, I was on a YouTube show called well the website is called we are the pit.com but it's on youtube you can hear me talk shit on a bunch of underground metal records hope people don't don't take that too seriously i uh <laughs> i was i was j- cracking on bands that that you know all have band camp pages don't take that too serious i was i was being entertaining okay and then hit my mic but it was fun. So, you know, I like I like to roast some people sometimes. I was I was in that kind of mood. And then if you want to hear me kind of get serious, you know, and talk about some social issues, I was on a show entitled It's a pretty pretty small show, but you know, it was it was fun. Epic Footnote. I did two parts of that. Tell some funny stories on there. That's a podcast. You know, check it out. Just check it out. But yeah, I got I got no spiel. Usually, you know, 
It's like Martin Luther Coyle over here. I'm like, listen, I'm going to tell y'all what you need to do. I, I ain't got nothing out there this week. All right. Uh, I think I, I think I had a little too much fun this weekend. The, the brain is still catching up. Anyway, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop fucking around. Let's just get into the god dang sponsor for this week. All right. We have a band. They're from L.A. All right. They're called The Human Extinction. And we're going to tra- play a track entitled Lex Talionis. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Check it out. Control my blood, I feel inside This deep inside of me It has been 
So that track was entitled Lex Talionis by the band The Human Extinction. And, you know, if I'm mispronouncing the name of the song, I'm sure it's Latin 
or Portuguese. I don't know what it is. All right, we're I I, I swim in an ocean of ignorance over here uh, when it comes to some of these words. So I, my, my apologies to the band, but I, I enjoyed that track. It was very heavy, but it had. I like it had some nice twists and turns that I wasn't I wasn't expecting, and I feel like they're being you know more creative than a lot of the run of the bill run of the mill bands out there. So I I really enjoyed that. But anyway, um, yeah, these guys are from L.A. and this is one of two singles that they have released currently right now from a new album that's coming out called Extinct, and was recorded and produced by Mr. Joshua Lopez of. Widowmaker Studios. There's a video out for the track you just heard, which they were lucky able to shoot before all the stay-at-home orders happened. And you can check out both those tracks on pretty much anywhere where music is streamed. You know, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, blah, 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 blah. You know the deal. Um, if you want to check out the band, please go to their Facebook page, facebook.com backslash The Human Extinction or their YouTube lookup THX official, and they always have a, also have a band camp. And one more thing, if you are in Los Angeles and you're a drummer and you liked what you heard, hit these guys up and uh, see if you can try out for the banks. They are looking for a drummer. So really appreciate them supporting the show. If you would like to hear your band on the X-Men podcast, hit me up on social media, drop me a DM, or email me at Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, it is E. X. Alrighty. We do have a guest this week. And I, I would say a very special guest this week. Uh, his name is Carl Severson. He is someone I've known at this point longer than 20 years, which is which is very, very hard to believe. And really, you know, having conversations with uh people like him is why I started this show. You know, uh because you know, I, I started from a very particular standpoint in the heavy music scene, and it and it does feel like a unique journey, and it's wonderful to bring people uh, into this conversation who, you know, not that we have had the same journey, but uh, we understand where we where, where we come from, and it's uh, and it's really cool, you know. And uh, Carl, someone we we talked about doing the show a while back, and he was hesitant. You'll hear that. Well, we talked about that early on, um, but he reached out to me. And said, "Hey, man, you, do you want to do the show?" And I was like, "Hell yeah, I want to do the show." And 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 because this, you know, it's all about for me the community I came from and the journey to where I am now. And so any of the 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 kind of figures that kind of came with me on that journey to some degree or another, if it was next to each other or parallel or kind of we just crossed paths, th- those are my favorite stories. I I want to expose to to you guys because there's that. That different kind of connection. So, uh, Carl, you know, you know, Ferret Records, Good Fight Records. You might know his band Nora, um, and he's just a really important figure in our scene because he's been a part of so many bands that have taken off. You know, be it Kill Switch Engage, or you know, Blood Has Been Shed, Every Time I Die, A Life Once Lost. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and yeah, and so I was really excited to do this, and I think you guys can really enjoy it. So check out my conversation with the awesome, very successful, and talented Mr. Carl Severson. Well, Carl Severson, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the X-Man show. You know, uh, me and you have been talking about this for a few years, 
but you you had some uh, hesitancy. Is that a word? Hesitancy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Had some reservations. Exactly. Um, and I don't know. I I can't remember exactly what that 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 stemmed from, but I I imagine just being someone who's behind the scenes to a certain degree. I guess you're you're behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. I guess in in, in many regards. But um, you know, in that world of you know you. I, I, mean, I can only imagine what it's like to be kind of on the the higher end of the business side of things, you know, where you're right. kind of, you know, and, you know, coming out of the scene we come up from, it's all very personal. It's all right, right. friends, family, forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, for the pain inside. Uh, no, I was just, I was always, you know, it's the sort of thing where, I mean, what we do, same as you, like, you know, we trade in the public light and, and that sort of thing, especially with social media and all that. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, like I, I tell my kids and I kind of, you know, I was like, you know, anything you say, anything you send in a text or an email, you know, like that shit's forever. So having conversations with people that are recorded, you know, somebody takes something out of context. Next thing you know, you're an asshole. Then the podium you know? comes out. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I apologize. <laughs> Accusations were made. <laughs> I learned. Yeah. I'm a different man. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just always like, you know what? You know how you avoid that? You just don't put yourself in a spot where it can ever become an issue. You know? Yeah. Not that I, you know, like I, I've been lucky. Like, you know. Are you, are you a notorious shit talker? Is that yeah. what it is? You're going to start throw, lobbing some bombs in, in this? No, I've, I've, no, 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 no. I've actually, uh, one, one of the things that I was always really proud of with, you know, Ferret and then on the on on good fight was just, and then through Nora was, you know, I've, I've had a number of people in bands that I've worked with and argued with and, and things like that. But I've never had, you know, anybody just like, you know, openly be like, dude, that guy's a fucking thief or, you know, any of the, you know, like, I mean, I've never, I mean, I haven't heard that. Yeah. I, I've never had a bill or a royalty that I didn't pay. And, you know, I mean, there were times when shit was tight and it took a while to get done, but you know, we, we always got to sort it out. So, well, so let's, let's kind of go, go back to the beginning. Cause I guess some of the beginning stuff, I don't, I don't even know about, you know, as far as, like for example, like what came first, uh, you you being a, a band guy or you being the label so guy? It, it was, I basically became a label guy because I couldn't be a band guy. So I went to high school with you know Michael Under. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out, we gotta get him on the show. Oh yeah, we should. We definitely should. Um, uh, so you know he was one of the first people I met when I moved to New Jersey. We went to high school together. Josh from Trust Kill. Um, so I got like, you know, literally my first day of high school, I had a Gorilla Biscuit shirt on and, you know, those dudes were like, yo, you're core. And I was like, yeah. So, you know, instant bros. And, uh, you know, Mike started Endeavor while we were in high school. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I was never in the band, but I was basically with them for everything that, you know, Mike moved into my house and our basement became their practice space and stuff like that. And uh, so I was always with them. And uh, I don't what, what years are we talking about here? This would have been 90, I graduated high school in 93. So this would have been, yeah, probably that that senior year is when it started and then it carried, you know, over into, uh, you know, the, the next few years of, of college Now, how did you stuff. even get into Gorilla Biscuits or the hardcore scene? I, I, lived in, I lived in Virginia and uh, skateboarding. Skateboarding is what got it. You know, I, I, you know, when you're a skater kid and you, you, you know, you meet some older guys, like it was, it's always like a big age of, of kids that, that hung out and the older dudes, uh, you know, were when we would skate, they were always playing like bad brains and ill repute and subhumans and old punk stuff and agnostic front. 
and uh and we got into it that way you know dead kennedys was probably the first band that i was like really really like you know passionate about i remember being on a boy scout camping trip sitting in my tent like reading dead kennedy's lyrics making sure i could memorize them and stuff like that like so i got into it through skateboarding and then um when i was a freshman in high school uh i I met a kid that was uh you know in uh in the dc area His, his older brother was uh I think his older brother was in Bash. You remember those guys, Baltimore I area do, skinheads? Do, um, do I remember that? I don't even yeah. know. It was Bash or Sharp, you know, um, one of those things. But he was my age, and I you know, he saw like I had a tape on my desk. I think it was, it was like a Warzone tape, and he was like, "Oh, he started telling me about stuff." And I met him. We went into DC and went to a record store, and he was pointing. I was like, "Oh, you should listen to this and this," and that's kind of what got me into you know initially into hardcore. So. You were helping out Endeavor kind of, you know, which is, it's funny because that, that story is very repetitive in the scene is like the guy who was not in the band, but drove the van or sold the right. merch or just helped out. And then th- that person, you know, like Big E, that's basically his story, right? Yeah, that yeah, he absolutely. Be- he became kind of the uh, the sixth member or fifth member, whatever kind of band he was. Yeah, I think it was, it was 18 Visions and Throwdown. So you, you said, know, you, so you said you couldn't be the guy. Why couldn't you be the guy? In the I mean, you know, at the time, like... I mean, I had zero musical talent. Um, I remember I'm, when I graduated high school, my mom bought me a bass guitar as a like a graduation gift. It was a sweet one too. We still have it. Um, the, that guitar has actually been in more bands than you know, way more than I have. Was it a Fender? It, uh, no, it was a uh, it was a Les Paul bass. A Les Paul bass. Yeah, Whoa. it's cr- weighs about four hundred tons. And uh, but, <laughs> but it, it, it looked, sounds good. Looked right? badass. Yeah. yeah, you know, and it, it became like. You know, the Nora de facto bass. If we lost a bass player and we had someone filling in, it was like, oh, this is a guitar player. It's like, well, use this bass. So it was used for that. And then ended up, you know, Chris Burns used it in Every Time I Die. And I think, you know, somebody used it in Ensign at one point. But yeah, this is like a long list. It's actually still at Ross, our drummer's house. At some point, I'll get it back. But, uh, but yeah, no, the reason I couldn't do it was just like, I didn't have any musical talent. And I definitely didn't have the confidence to, you know, think about singing or anything like that or starting my own thing. You know, plus, you know, Endeavor was already banned. They didn't need anybody else. Um, but I, you know, I, I love those dudes and we, you know, traveled everywhere and all that sort of stuff. So when it came time for them to want to record something, I was like, oh, that's what I could do. Like, you know, I'll, I'll put out a seven inch for you guys. So that could kind of be my contribution to that particular band. And, uh, and it was fun. I think, the, you know, pretty sure we only did one pressing of that record was it called ferret records at the time yeah called ferret records where did the name come from um it's embarrassing i had a ferret you know and uh looking around the room you're like uh uh cup cup records do i have a door yeah literally like oh i have a ferret i'll call it ferret records yeah and uh (laughs) yeah i remember my mom was always like oh your logo should be a picture of a ferret and i was like i'm not leaning too hard into this name like four or five releases in i'm kind of stuck with the name and i'll make the best of it yeah. So, so was that instinctive to kind of make that leap? Was uh, business or kind of that proactive nature, or, or was it, you know? Because I remember, like at least you know, from my perspective, with God forbid, not only did we not outside of making our own demo tapes, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of kind of the the entrepreneurial thrust of DIY right. culture, mm-hmm. right? Like it's kind of weird that it, it kind of goes hand in hand, even though some of the Maybe ideologies probably you would think they would kind of clash, but it actually kind of goes. To- yeah, no, I mean, I, I've, you know, I've worked in a 
number of different industries like you know outside of music like i owned a snowboarding company for a while and we worked in action sports for a while um and dude nobody hustles harder than people in music yeah. i mean that's one thing i'm saying like nobody's like just you know the kids out there like you know young all the way up to you know dudes like me I, i've just never met anybody that that hustled as hard as as people do in music um so for for me really at the time it was just kind of like all of a sudden I went from just being like a hardcore kid at a show to like, now I'm part of this. Now I'm, I'm giving something to it. I'm contributing to it. And, uh, and I, and I just, I loved it. It, it was awesome. I, I, you know, I get cited. It's like you come home and check your, you know, answering machine. And it was like, dude, you got 20 messages from kids from, you know, and some of them from other countries. I was like, that's so cool. And, uh, so yeah, it just, it, how many did you print the first one? That first one we did a thousand, but, uh, on the endeavors first tour, their van caught on fire and uh in the middle of the night and they jumped out i mean dudes literally were you know stranded without shoes um and i think like three or four hundred of them melted in the fire but uh yeah it's good times but uh (laughs) so what happens when you buy a 500 hundred dollar van and try and drive it around the united states (laughs) well we've uh i'm trying to think no we definitely spent more than that but (laughs) on the first yeah, yeah well no we we bought well my brother bought john stanley's red van Okay. Yeah. We, that was, you guys uh, used the Norvan a couple times. God uh, well, forbid did, as I recall. I'm trying to remember when God forbid used it. I definitely used it because uh, I used it to move. Really? <laughs> <laughs> like, right? Actually, nice. when, when I, I'm trying to think, was if, when I moved to, um, yeah, when I, when I moved to Jersey City. But yes, definitely. Which, which goes to tell you about how communal. And it's like, it's weird. I was, I was you know, every time I do one of these, I just think about my history with that that person and and how every person in the in in the band i have like a different kind of personal long-lasting relationship with in different kind of ways and it's um and it's just i don't know there's there's something it's probably the reason why we're having this conversation there's there's something really special about that for some reason our connection and coming up together and being kind of brothers in arms in 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 this music scene but for some reason like you can just call a guy up and ask for a favor. Oh yeah. After not talking maybe for three or four years, and they're like, "Oh yeah, sure, no problem. Come, yeah, you know, yeah, come over, you do it." And it, yeah, that was. I mean, that was one of the things that I was drawn to early on about you know hardcore and punk of just how you know communal it was like that, and you know, and I still remember. <clears throat> and this was like way deeper into to my career and stuff. And there's Nora, but we played a festival in Japan, um, and uh, I remember that night after the festival, like a bunch of us are hanging out. And it's funny, it was like, I'm in Japan and I'm hanging out with like 30 people that I'm legitimately good friends with because they were all in, it was like, you know, the Kill Switch guys and the Brian and Mike from Metal Blade were there and you know uh, the Lamb of God guys and it was all this and we were all just kind of having this moment. We we're like, this is crazy. We're in Japan and we're all, you know, all dudes that we know from the US and, but like, you know, we're all hanging out like, you know, it might as well be, you know, to barbecue at somebody's house, like a reunion. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, you know, it was pretty surreal and cool. So we call the, the smell the roses mo- moments. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, so I guess this is like early, mid, mid nineties. Um, were you, did you have, did you go to college? Yeah. I went to Rutgers. Um, well, I, I graduated high school and uh, my dad was military. So we moved every two to three years all through growing up and so i'd been in jersey by then three four years and i felt like itchy like i have to move just because you know i guess i'd always done it so i did my first year of school in minneapolis and uh 
which was cool because the end result is, you know, I met the guys in Harvest and uh, Disembodied and Martyr, which is basically oh, the same see, guys. That, it's it. So I'm putting it together yeah. now. So, oh, yeah. So that's where that all came from. Why, you know, this dude from Jersey put out all these, you know, records for bands from Minneapolis. But it's crazy because all people that I'm friends with, you know, to this day. Um, but yeah, I was there for one year and, uh, you know, every time I'd call home, like uh, by then Mike Olander, he was living at my house, you know, with my parents and my brother. And Josh and some of my other friends were just, every time I called, they were all over at the house hanging out doing stuff. And I was like, you know, I made friends in Minneapolis and it was awesome, but I was just like, you know, this was the first time in my life I left something because I, you know, chose to do it as opposed to just not having a choice. And uh, so, yeah, after a year, you know, I moved back. My dad was stoked because I had a scholarship to Rutgers, which I negated by going to Minneapolis for a year. And then when I reapplied to Rutgers to no transfer scholarship. no scholarship <laughs> my parents were like really yeah but uh you effed up bro. yeah just how but yeah no college, college was cool you know we, we lived in uh I mean that's where you know that that's when I met you when we were all living in New Brunswick's like 10 dudes living in a house with one bathroom did you have goals in college of okay this is where this is going to take me kind of professionally no honestly I I had I was one of those dudes that went to school because you just went to school and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I have a degree in communications and uh, like a minor in sociology. And uh, I was like, communication was like, I like this record label thing. You know, maybe communications could be useful. But and how many how many records did you have out at that point? By the time I started school. Oh, I mean, I had I started college. I didn't put out the first record first endeavor record until my sophomore year of college. OK. Um, and how are you like, how are you paying for like being able to put out a record. Uh, I did it with, this was back in the day, like you would just get those credit card offers in the mail, like 0% interest and we'll give it to anyone, you know? Like, Damn. and uh, yeah, I mean, it bit me in the ass. I mean, by the time years later, when I first started at Roadrunner, and I, I mean, I, I think at one point I had like $60,000 in credit card debt. Just from just doing all the from, label? Just from running the record label. Yeah. Jesus. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, well, did it, I did it for the kids, man. <laughs> listen, it's it's amazing how often you hear about that. I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, Clerks, the Kevin Smith movie, he yeah. did with credit cards. Yeah, it, it was, you know, I would just do this shuffle. Like now those offers don't really come around. But, you know, like every six months I would, you know, whatever Switch, card I had bounce it to that. Yeah. Program. The 0% interest ended. So I'd switch it over to another and balance transfer and all that sort of thing. And when it, you know, there were, there was a period where I was like, all right, I'm going to make this big push with ferret. And, uh, I, I was still at, uh, I was still working at Roadrunner at the time. But, uh, so in two well, so months, how did you, how did you, what did you do at Roadrunner and how did that, uh, come uh about? so the guy that actually put out, uh, Matt Young, uh, who runs all of merchandising for Warner now and one of the best dudes ever. Uh, he had a record label called Definitely Not the Majors in Jersey way back. And he actually uh, put out the first Nora song that we ever recorded um, on on this comp that he did. And uh, so he and I just stayed friendly. And at the time he was, uh, I, <clears throat> I ended up interning for him at Earache Records. He worked at Earache and, uh, and I was a bad intern. Um, it was awesome, you know. I was super excited to to do the job, but like then Endeavor were like, "Oh, we're gonna go on a U.S. tour." So I was like, "Yeah, so I can't intern anymore." Like, but uh, but he was cool with it and he got it, and uh, we stayed close after that. Um, and when he was working at Blue Grape, he called me one day. He was like, "Yeah, it's like you know anything about this whole internet thing?" And I was like, "Yeah, I taught myself how to do HTML coding so I could design Ferret's website and you know learn that you know just on my own." 
And he's like, oh, well, Roadrunner's looking to hire somebody to do that stuff. And uh, <clears throat> and he was like, so, you know, do you want me to put in a word for you? So he did. And, you know, through a series of weird events, um, you know, I ended up with a gig. I was definitely the only person that Blue Grape brought into Roadrunner. You know, Case, who owned Roadrunner, also owned Blue Grape, but they were, uh, you know, definitely separate companies. But yeah, it was funny. I was the manager of new media. And now and then, you know, I look back on that. I was like, literally at one point, you know, my job was being like hip to all the newest shit on the internet and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, and now like, you know, 44 and i was like what's what's fucking tiktok you know like <laughs> well it moves it moves fast the, the yeah. cycles move move quickly and if you don't stay on top of it you definitely um get 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 out of out of step with things so with uh roadrunner was that were you still in college uh no roadrunner was uh like my first real job after gotcha. college i did some web design for a while here and there and uh you know i worked at a diner and that sort of stuff but uh but roadrunner is the first like real job i was there for four years and yeah and so so where does nora come up about all this so nora came about uh we started that my senior year of college so it would have been 97 um we started doing that and it was uh mike olander from from endeavor had taught himself how to play guitar and was like way into it and you know wanted to start a band and i was he was like dude you should sing for it and i was like yeah all right i'll give that a shot and uh you should hear our original demos man my voice can hit some high notes <laughs> before the balls drop yeah, yeah it was uh it, it was pretty funny um but uh yeah and it was just um our friend uh split uh had had played bass and uh and i hadn't i met him you know chris ross he lived at handy street then and handy street was pretty famous for all the shows they did and uh we knew he played drums and i think at the time he was also an ensign uh, i forget exactly how it lines up with ensign it's and very all that incestuous yeah oh yeah yeah oh yeah new brunswick you know hardcore bands it's all the same members like looping around it was Kohler like in the original Kohler, Kohler. we had this other dude murph that we went to that i went to high school with kevin murphy um he was in for a little while and uh i forget why that didn't last um but then kohler came in right after that and that's when uh you know awesome dude and and that was fun because uh you know he managed the the melody you know he ran the whole Mm -hmm. melody bar so that became like our practice space as well ross did the shows of the melody so we conveniently anytime ross was doing a really good show we were like you know what we should play that one too it became like the house band well that was that was you know uh, my kind of introduction to the to the scene you know and trying to figure out what was what and who was who you know one of the you know you have those like petty kind of you know early jealousies and you're like you're like oh that guy he holds a label and they're on and you say this band is getting this and it made me realize just how political everything every everything oh, yeah. was about and in a way it, it it offhand taught me about uh i guess my both my brother and myself about networking Right, that in order to get in the places where you want, you kind of knowing people and making relationships yep. and and kind of just being top of mind. Um, but anyway, I'm getting again a little a little ahead, ahead of myself. Um, what was kind of the the goal with Nora? You know, was it because it seemed like everyone had other um, aspirations outside of that? And I I, I draw this kind of interesting d- distinction. You know, this, this kind of comes up a lot on my show where the dudes and God forbid, like mm-hmm. we literally didn't have like we had dumb 
jobs that no one cared about and mm-hmm. all we cared about was the band right and then all these other bands that we would play within the local scene it was like oh this person's in college this person's going to right. graduate like it was like the band was almost like a temporary thing that they were doing until they went to the next phase of, of right of it was lives. almost like a, like a hobby or something yeah, yeah. Or just i don't i mean um like you know summer fling that's not the way to way to put it but it it was just it took up a different kind of space yeah i mean for us it was literally just i mean you know michael under started it because he wanted to play guitar yeah you know and uh and we we're all like you know chris ross will do whatever he can do to be in band for the rest of his life i mean that that's his passion his life so yeah he's a lot and uh so and you know so he was he loved it and uh you know i was just in because you know, it was my friends and I was like, all right, so this is one thing I haven't done before. And, uh, I mean, I still remember the first time anyone asked me to sing for a band. It was some, some guys from Minneapolis. Um, How did they know you could do it? They just see you like put the mic out. And you, they, yeah. they just knew me from shows and yeah. things like that. And, and one of the guys I remember asking, he was like, dude, you, you should try, you know, we've got a band with no singer. Why don't you come check it out? And I went to two practices and stood there and literally never uttered a sound in the microphone. It was just, <laughs> I was just like intimidated, so intimidated. Yeah. I've had a couple opportunities in my life where I was just, the intimidation got the best of me and I couldn't do it. There was, so there was that one, the first shot at doing a band and I was just like, I was embarrassed. I was like, I can't well, do it. Well, it's scary. And I think, yeah. I think vocals are more scary than anything because mm-hmm. you're putting yourself out there mo- most in the most vulnerable kind of sense of yeah. things. The other time was Lamb of God were playing, I think it was club Chrome back when Chrome was around. And, uh, for whatever reason, Randy didn't make it to the show. Then Bob, uh, then Bob from Life Was Lost. Yes, but initially Adler, you know, because Nora played that show, um, but Adler, you know, came up to me and he was like, he's like, dude, so Randy's not going to be here tonight, so you should sing for us. And I was like, holy shit, it's like getting called up for the show, you know? Like <laughs> I was like, Big yeah, I was like, that's wow, crazy. And I was like, all right, all right. And I went and like sat in my car for like a half hour. I was like, you know, I, I know all the words, you know, they're like one of my favorite bands. And um, that's half the battle. You're yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, I came in and found him. I was like, dude, I can't do it. Just, I, just I, I was just, I was just totally shook. And, uh, and I was like, you know, Bob from a life once lost is here. And, uh, and Bob crushed it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was at that. Show. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was great. But, uh, yeah, that was, you know, insecurities have always been an issue you know for me here and there it's funny like public speaking i remember at roadrunner once the uh the president of the company we were uh he called me in his office and he was like hey listen i, I was thinking um you know we should you know we'll pay for you to take some public speaking classes and uh and i was like because you know they liked me at that company you know I, I was doing really well there and stuff and he was like yeah i think it'll be really good for you and that sort of stuff it and is I, good it's a good skill yeah you know, and i never did it um because i was like you know it's a like I was always nervous about it. like even taking classes. Well, made they me say nervous. that's like the number one yeah. fear of pe- for in like um, yeah. in like the country is people speaking yeah. in front of other yeah. people. Meanwhile, once I did it with band with Nora, like I you know it just clicked. I was totally comfortable on stage all the time. You know, just like talking to festivals crowd. in front of thousands of people and things like that. I was always like yeah, just totally comfortable with it. You put me in a in a marketing meeting with twelve people where I have to present something and I'm you know fucking stammering and stuff and you know like yeah, so. I never made that much sense. You know, I and whatever the microphone kind of shielded me. Well, it's or a whatever. microphone, but you're also, when you're in a band, you have like your dudes. Yeah. You know, it's like you're a, a unit. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You weren't, you're right. You weren't really up there alone, sort of thing. So, so through, through all this, you know, I guess this is probably around the time 
we probably met or like I said, I don't even officially remembering. Uh, I remember you. I met you. I'm almost positive. It was that night you guys played Plum Street Pub. Yeah. With uh, with Dillinger. Like I'm on because I remember you guys did an at the gates cover. Yeah. And I was like, this rules. And I just remember introducing myself. And uh, yeah. Then he offered us a record deal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I never did. That's I, was, it's, I think we've I think by the time this, I thought about it, by it the time I was late. like, we should do this. You guys were on Century Media. Yeah. Well, what happened was it, in a way it's it's funny because we recorded Reject the Sickness, which is our first like real album. Wait. Oh, did you do a record with Maddie? No. Yeah. Uh what was his, what was his label? All right, who who did no, your first record? Brian Bonilla. Oh, Bonilla did it. Yeah, Nine Volt. Okay, so you know, I see him every now and then. Yeah, I I was literally just 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 talking okay, to him yeah. on the phone. Um, so while we were, uh, Steve Evans produced it and Alan Douches mastered it, and they literally sent the record to Century Media, and we just had it in our mind that we wanted to be on Century Media because yeah. I think we always perceived ourselves as just a metal band that yeah. was kind of like masquerading in the hardcore scene right right <laughs> and um and so it's funny and they like they heard it and they went to sign us immediately so in a weird way by the it's time a great record by the time the band got really good mm -hmm. there was it was never we were never out there enough for there to be like a bidding war or well, people right to, you did that first deal well it's yeah. central media so it was a five record deal or something oh, it, was like that. it was three records oh, it was only three and then we signed an extra one uh, to do Ozfest, so for that, right. for, for them to give us the money to Ozfest, they made us sign an extra Dude, record. The Ozfest years, we could talk about that. Oh, like. we'll get we'll, we'll we'll get into that, but um, but but no. So I, I in hindsight, I'm like, wow, if we would have had more confidence in ourselves, and we just like let the album be out and see, and then send it to everybody and see yeah. what came back. Who knows? Who you you know? I don't know. Central Media. I feel like you know. If you look back in hindsight, historically, they did right by you. I mean, you guys sold a lot of records. Yeah, no, it, I, I remember mean, one I of your records. Right I forget which one it was, but I remember it was after I had left Roadrunner and I was doing Ferret full time, and it, and me and Portland were sitting in the office, and uh, and we were just looking at you know back then print media was a big thing, and we were you know we were saying we we're like dude the setup and the pub the publicity you know like around this God forbid record was like the probably the one of the best setups probably constitution seen. of treason yeah, yeah i think so because I mean, yeah, it, it was just like every single magazine you open there was like multiple like, full page, page feature yeah. like advertising and interviews and stuff i, I remember being like yo who is i think george was your publicist on yeah, that one killed it because i i literally i we hired him for shit after seeing the setup for that record we were like this just crushed everything yeah we got cover of decibel cover of metal maniacs yeah. um you know all the metal guitar. maniacs well we, we and we were mad because it was a uh, one of those split covers with oh, this yeah. band grand magus we're like who the fuck is <laughs> grand magus i'm like we just sold on seventy thousand records grand magus ain't sold nothing <laughs> we're taking half our space <laughs> but um anyway enough about god forbid yeah. let's talk about what what, what, what you but anyway this probably around the time that we we met and you kind of came on the scene and you know one of the things I, I, I remember and it's it's funny because uh I don't know if you know Finn McKenty he does like the punk rock NBA like his YouTube channel you should check it out it's pretty pretty yeah, awesome check it out. but he 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 comes up with all these uh like like subgenre names like kind of quasi as a joke and when he yeah. he called Trust Kill Core and I'm like you can't to me I always saw Trust Kill and Ferret as kind of two sides of the same coin yeah, or even for sure. maybe one side of us a really big coin right in that you know there was just a, obviously you had the jersey connection you guys right. are friends there was a kind of 
aesthetic similarity between the kinds of bands like there wasn't to me any distinction between this sonically what band would be on what label except for the fact that it seemed like he had pretty much got all the uh the orange county bands he 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 literally he had orange county on lockdown yeah so that that provided its own kind of similarities amongst amongst itself um but to me it was it was for every band that did great on there it seemed like the, you you had a counterpart doing either yeah. either either just as as big was that something um like was that just a coincidence that you both had started labels and yeah of- i mean he started it first um and i was definitely like i was impressed by it yeah and uh you know, I still remember, you know, when we did the Endeavor 7-inch, I was like, you know, uh, I didn't know how to do graphic design or anything at that time. I taught myself later. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I knew the Jordan brothers who Josh had started. Um, well, he did that zine with them. Um, and they, he did that that first record, the Land Agreed, World of Need, the uh, Embrace Covers record. Um, and I know the Jordan brothers were involved in that. But I remember, like, you know, when we went to lay out the Endeavor 7-inch, like, we went to... I forget which Jordan brother, but he had a job at a graphic design place and Josh took me up there and he laid out the record where I was like, Oh, let's do this and this. And he like laid it out for me. So, and then, you know, Josh ended up doing all the harvest records after I did that first seven inch. Um, Cause I was in a spot where I was like, all right, I've got, you know, disembodied wants to do an actual album and I haven't done an album before and that's going to cost actually some money and I've got harvest and they want to do an album as well. And I just can't afford to do both. And I was like, you know, I knew Josh liked Harvest a lot. And I was like, dude, you, you would you want to do the Harvest record? And he did. And, you know, that was uh, Living with a Gob Complex, which is still one of my favorite records. Um, but yeah, Josh was always super helpful with, you know, me early on. And, uh, you know, and we grew up listening to music together and stuff like that. So it just kind of, it made sense. We had like similar tastes and, and things like that. Was there a competitive... Thing of, no, we always did like, I mean, you know, we, we fuck with each other here and there. Like friendly um, competitive, competitive. Yeah. I mean, we were like, yeah, it was, it was, it was never anything but, but friendly ever. Did you, you know? ever like, there was stuff that I passed on that yeah. he signed and stuff that he passed on. Uh, he, he might've gotten the kill switch demo before I did. Um, and I know, you know, I, like I was in the mix for 18 Visions before he was yeah. and things like that. And, uh, you know, so it was always, you know, and then we go back and make fun of each other for stuff that we missed and on the other person did well on and stuff. So, so he had the Kill Switch demo and said, nah, I don't, I'm I don't not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure where he was at with it. I have to ask him. I feel like I listened to him. I mean, I, re- I know he had it. Um, we never talk, spoke about it at the time. Yeah. Uh, and we might have both gotten it at the same time and maybe I beat him to the punch or something. But uh, I mean, I still remember when I got that. I got that. Mike sent that to me with no vocals on it, and I was still like, "Dude, this fucking rules! Find a singer, and I'm in." You know? Yeah. Um, which you know was a good call on my part. But uh, yeah, no, there was, it was always you know super friendly, and uh, you know all the years that he did Hellfest, you know he was always he made he took care of every single one of my bands and, and stuff like that. So you know it was always I mean that was always a lot of fun. Did working at Roadrunner give you like where you were at roadrunner kind of like okay i'm gonna take notes and i'm gonna see how is it how is it if i had all the resources or i was thinking in this kind of really grand ambitious scale this is how i would do it or is it you were just working your job no i mean honestly and I, I, this is a testament to the people 
that were at Roadrunner at the time, like when they found out I had a record label, it became like they're like, oh, that young dude Carl's got a record label. Like, you're, like hey, Carl, come here, do this. Like yeah. the first time I ever got a national buy from a chain was on the Kill Switch record, you know, Hot Topic took like 20,000. That never happened before ever. And uh, it's insane. And That's that, actually a big number. It was crazy. Oh yeah. And then back then you're like, oh. I mean, yes, back then that was, for me, it was a big number. Later on, it got to the point where like that just happened all the time. Yeah. But uh, but that one, it was the head of sales at uh at Roadrunner at the time. This guy Mike Cantor, um, he was you know, <clears throat> awesome guy. He knew about my label and just had taken a liking to me and was kind of taking me under his wing. And <clears throat> he was like, all right, so I know the buyer over at Hot Topic, um, and I know his way into the basketball. He's a Lakers guy and stuff. So give me your one sheet for this band, give me a promo copy, um, go buy a Lakers jersey in this size, you know, wrap, oh, grease in the wheels. He huh? was like, wrap the CD in a Lakers jersey and send it to him. And, uh, you know, he gave me, so he like step-by-step step told me to do that. And it, you know, but it was cool. No, no one had ever, you know, like showed me how to do any of that sort of shit. And, uh, yeah, so he was great. Yeah. There was a number of guys there. Uh, you know, Mike Gitter was always good to me every now and then I'd be sitting at my desk and my desk was outside of like the main meeting room, conference room, and they'd do A&R meetings. And every now and then, you know, you could always, they'd crank the music in the A&R meetings. And I'd be sitting there at my desk, you know, typing away, doing whatever. And I'd hear something come on the A&R meeting. And I was like, that's one of my fucking records, <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, but no, everybody was there. I mean, I, you know, it was the people at Roadrunner that eventually pushed me, like when, uh, I think I had the Kill Switch record and the From Autumn Ashes record that were like doing really, really well, you know, you know, a couple thousand a week sort of thing. Um, imagine that, good old days. And, it was uh, you doing a couple thousand a week of that like before they were on Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah. Damn, I hadn't realized and that, that. And that's why. And so you know, somebody so at Roadrunner were like, you know, pushed me. Was like, dude, what are you doing working here? And I was like, I, I mean, honestly, I, I love it. It was, you know, I mean, I've been very lucky in my life to have not i mean roadrunner's the last job i ever had yeah you know and i left there in 2002 but uh you know but they were like dude i mean like it was like roadrunner at the time had you know some records that weren't doing that a week um granted they had records that were doing twenty thousand a week and shit like that as well but uh you know but so they were just like it's like you got a shot at doing something here and uh so i got connected you know a, a friend at roadrunner hooked me up with a lawyer and was like, and this lawyer, you know, like went did the dance and, you know, introduced me to everybody. And it was a very cool time. Like, so what, what was these meetings? What was that supposed to lead to? Well, I was looking for a distro deal, but I, at the time, you know, some of these meetings turned into like, you know, like, Hey, you know, we could do, why don't we just buy you? You know? Yeah. I mean, and some of the deals were terrible. Like, we'll just give you a salary and we'll own everything that you do. And you'll like run it. Yeah. I'll run it, but we'll own everything. Um, but, you know, eventually, uh, you know, turned into a uh, distro deal with Red. And uh, and it was cool. And that was enough to like, I was like, all right. You know, and that was scary. I mean, at Roadrunner, I was making, I think by the time I left, I was making like 60 grand a year, which I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. I can't, you know, and I was single. You know, I had like a dog and an apartment you know but basically like you living know, the life yeah it was i mean i had like you know it was cheap and uh so i had you know more than i needed and i, I was just good to go so like walking away from all that was well, a little it. scary the, the parachute is gone yeah but uh well, you know in the end best thing i ever did yeah i but, mean uh, listen i think i can only imagine from their perspective 
you know, having all these different employees and then you see someone who's a self-starter who's, you know, like yeah. just that idea of not being completely reliant or doing things. That's, I'm they, sure that's probably impressive. They were really cool. There's only one time where it got weird. Um, I don't know why. Tony from Victory never liked me. I mean, he didn't like anybody else that had a record label. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of his MO. I literally have never met the dude my entire life. Um, I, I've only been in the same room with him once. Um, and that was at a show. There's thousands of us there. Uh, and, uh, but I get called into the GM's office at Roadrunner. And uh, sit down, and he was like, "Yeah, so we got to talk about uh, Ferret." And I was like, "How the fuck do you know about Ferret?" And because uh, this is like the vice principal of the company, basically, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, he's like, "Yeah, so you know, I've heard that you know you're working on your your record label on company time and using our mail room and doing all." Was that true? Um, no. I mean, yeah, I would field some emails that came through now and then, but I was very good at my job at Roadrunner. Yeah. I never made sure, you know, like I, you know, like I mean, my boss was Corey Brennan. Just remember when you do other work yeah. on company time, you're stealing from the company. Yeah, exactly. But no, dude, my boss was, my immediate boss was Corey Brennan. If I was doing a bad job, he wouldn't have let that shit slide for yeah. a, a second. You know, that, that dude was just, you know, I mean, obviously you look at his career now, he's an absolute murderer, but you know, even back then. People don't know he managed to slip yeah, and he, you know, back then he was, uh, <clears throat> he was awesome to work for. But I mean, he he drove you like you know hard. So there, you know, I I never felt conflicted whatsoever at all. And I wasn't using their mail room for anything, you know. So you just like, denied like it that. and kind of just no. Was I was just like, yeah, no, I know. I, I broke it down completely for him, and I told him, and I was like, dude, but who said this? Is it somebody here? And he was like, no, no, it was Tony from Victory. And how uh, would he know? And because uh, he fucking called Roadrunner and told on me. He legit. But why? But I'm saying, but saying, how would he even have that information if he's not in the office? Seeing what I, maybe I got a band that he wanted or something like that, okay. and he knew I worked at Roadrunner. Divide and conquer. Yeah, I don't remember exactly the deal was, but I just remember I got called into the principal's office and scolded because I got told on. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in it, it's something that literally I, I would think about you all the time in this regard, uh, especially because you know I'm, I'm I'm friends with Mike Gitter too, and 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 Monty. And you think about this skill of mm-hmm. being able to see a band or hear a demo and kind of go, I think they have this thing, this right. special thing that I want to be a part of. And I'm willing to, you know, and as you being a, a label owner, literally make a bet on right. whether or not something will be successful. Um, and and, and when, I, when I look at your your history and the bands you, you dealt with, um, obviously you can kind of get a vibe for your taste, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it, it seemed like you could kind of, you had this thing of being able to kind of figure out what had some amount of either commercial viability or something that was just like I said, cause you had bands almost go beyond even the scope of what your label could do at the oh, time. Yeah. Is that something yeah. that c- comes natural for you or do you? I, yeah. I, I felt like it was one of those things where I'll, I'll look back on it. Um, especially now as I try and continue to do that, uh, you know, being older, you know, whereas, you know, before A&R for me was easy, especially when Nora was touring, because, you know, with, with Nora, it was every single weekend, every single vacation day, sick day, holiday, anything we do, we were out on the road, yeah. you know, so we were always playing with other bands and, and then, you, you know, you'd see them live and you'd see people's reaction and, and stuff like that. So it was less, it was way less of just like sitting there listening to demos and be like, oh, this rules. Like that didn't happen that often. That was like a kill switch thing, you know? Um, 
but most of the time it was bands I saw. So you could see the the reaction and see how people got it. Yeah. You know, I remember the first time I saw Converge, which resulted in me getting to do, you know, that, that Convert petitioning the Empty Sky record. You know, I mean, outside the fact that I was floored. I'd like at the time I was like, I've never seen anything like this and it's insane. But also I think we were in New Bedford or somewhere in Massachusetts. So it was like local for them. And it was like a prison riot. You know, I was like, oh. And uh, afterwards, you know, I introduced myself and I was like, hey, so I've got this shitty little label that's put out three seven inches. You guys want to do a seven inch? And they were like, yeah, sure. That'd be cool. And uh, <laughs> it was literally like that easy. And uh, that's pretty amazing. You know, and it was, I mean, to this day, I mean, the record's amazing. Um, I mean, is that, would you say the record that kind of put you on the map? That, yeah. I mean, I feel like that was the, that was the first time I did a record for a band that I wasn't friends with. Yeah. Like I became friends with And them. they already had a name. Yeah. They were, yeah. You know, because prior to that was, you know, an Endeavor who like if I asked them to do it and they said no, I'd be like, but, you know, like we're, we live together, you know, like and then Harvest, you know, we're, we're close friends of mine. And then uh, the hell was fair at number three. See, I need Rick Barnhart here because he knows better than I do. Because I think. See, my phones are off. Or else I right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because the Converge was the fourth record. And then they ended up being the first like CD we did. Yeah. You know, we added like a. You know, three more songs and like a live radio show, and and, and were, turn that. Into were you an doing album. contracts? No. So is that was a situation where you do a a record like that? Like, would you pay for the recording, or they would just basically like deliver? Yeah, no, no, I paid for the recording and uh, you know the quote unquote marketing, which was like you know running ads and Xerox zines and stuff like that. No, I, and actually, uh, I was supposed to do when Forever Comes Crashing. There's actually I saw it not that long ago, so like a, an old ferret ad. And like, you know, it was an ad for records that were currently out. And then in the bottom, it said, you know, coming soon, Converge, when forever comes crashing. They did it with what, Equal Vision? Equal Vision, yeah. Cause, I mean, Jake called me one day and he was like, hey, you know, we love you, dude. But, you know, Equal Vision are offering to buy us a van. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, it was an easy conversation. I was like, dude, of course you have to do that. You yeah. know, like, I mean, I I, I literally am going to give you $1,000 to make a record and nothing else. You know, like, <laughs> and I was like, and that's a huge budget for me. Um, but is this situation like that with uh, petitioning the empty sky? Would they at a certain point? Would they do they own their own masters? Like how would that like if they wanted the record back? Would, they, no, they, I always I always owned all of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, but even without a contract, like how, even without a, yeah, well, you know that that was the dupe. I mean, eventually, I as once it got bigger and became less of a hobby and more of like, oh, this is how I'm. Yeah, gotta live. We went back and papered over some old records. Like, gotcha. You know, so never like, with Converge. It's like let's make it official. Yeah, kind of thing. like there's no contract with you know for any of my early seven inches or any of that sort of stuff like that. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of the first. I think the first band that ever signed a contract with me was All Chrome, but that's a deep, deep cut. It is if anyone remembers. I, I, I remember it. Yeah. I, well, I, I went through the whole list of, of, of bands and it's like oh i forgot about that band oh mm -hmm. i forgot i i i forgot about that all chrome was cool because that was the first time we did like foil stamping on the cover and we were like yo this shit is expensive but it's awesome you know well it's it's funny because i was I, I you know there was this element um not only of like that all right these the, these two labels you and, and trusco have these kind of up and coming cutting edge bands but there was also this thing like you kind of mentioned the the packaging is that there seemed to be a kind of extra level of attention being paid to things like mm -hmm. album art right. and a presentation that gave at least me from the outside looking in that a, there was kind of a rigorous process of saying, all right, you gotta be 
kind of fucking badass to be on this label. But then we're also going to present it in a certain way uh, that feels fresh and feels new and feels cutting edge. And so it gave this kind of element, you know, and I think what, what appealed a lot of bands or why they'd want to sign with labels, it felt cool. Right. Like there was a cool factor that I think both labels. We definitely always want, you know, and it, for, for Ferret, it, that took on a way greater life and dominance when, uh, when Portland, um, he moved out here to join Nora and shortly thereafter, you know, started helping me with, with Ferret. I mean, he had another job. Um, he actually, uh, him and Spleet from Nora, they worked at the Rutgers newspaper called the Targum. Oh yeah, I know. Oh, I yeah. think Dallas. I think did Dallas worked the, there. It might have been there. It was like romper room with fucking super nice computers and Tim, those dudes. Those we worked there. Yeah, yeah. Tim was there. Our friend Kyle was there because they, they just hired oh, yeah, hired was, their yeah. own friends. And uh, you mean they got the work done, but it was like, you know, I mean that that was like if if there was ever a place I could have had a job, it would have been there because it was just like nonstop fun and. Uh, you know, they still will we'll talk about stories from there all the time. But uh, even then, Portland was like, you know, they had access to all these crazy computers and stuff. So he started basically working for Ferret then just, you know, for nothing. Are you saying and, he uh, was at his other job and using company he time? He might have. He might have done that. Does he know that that's stealing? <laughs> he might have stole from, from <laughs> I feel like Rutgers has taken enough from enough people that, you Yeah, know, they're fine. Right. They're yeah, fine. They're fine. That's right. But yeah, he was actually the first person that, uh, you know, when... Uh, when I when I left Roadrunner and started, you know, full time, you know, I convinced him to quit that job and come work with me. And uh, I still remember the day we're sitting in the office, and I had done my deal with Red, which was going to give us the funding and stuff like that, so we weren't like, you know, fucked. And uh, <clears throat> we had an issue with our previous distributor that I didn't really realize. Um, and my lawyer called me and was like, "Hey, we just got a Red just got a cease and desist on your deal, so your deal's out the fucking window until this is handled." And I was talking, and Portland's just sitting there at his desk, being like, "Uh, I quit a job with a salary and benefits and all this sort of stuff," and he's just sitting there listening to me, be you know, like freaking out and be like, "Yeah, so your funding is all gone," and uh, yeah, I mean, we got through, we got it sorted out, but uh, yeah, it's fun days. Yeah. I can, I can, I can only imagine. And I guess from your perspective, you were kind of, you know, it wasn't like there was a roadmap where you went to school for this. You were kind of just figuring out as you went oh, it along. It was total just, yeah. Like my mom was like, you should have gotten an MBA or something. And I was just like, it was really, really literally just like, just, you know, just, just try and, you know, try and fail and try and have it work, you know, just figuring it out as we went along, you know, and then, uh, I mean, and that was when, I was trying to get the uh, the credit card shit sorted out because yeah. you know, when it did get to the point where I was like, all right, I was seeing like the amount of interest because eventually like those, you know, zero percent ends, ends. that shit dried up. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, that that got stressful and all that. But uh, but we had a couple big wins with releases and all of a sudden we were like, yeah, let, I mean, let's let's talk about some of that. So you basically had, you know, Kill Switch Engage, you know, Kill Switch and From Autumn to Ashes popped off. Right around the same time that every time the first every time I die record and every, every time I die. Yeah. So with Kill Switch, they eventually now, from what I hear in the lore was that you kind of put uh, them on Gitters and kind of rode Yeah, map. absolutely. So they were going to, they were gonna, they had hooked up with that dude. Uh, what Morgan Walker? Yep. Remember him? Yep. That piece of shit. We did a deal with him. So yeah. oh, you guys got burned by him too. I still get honestly. I still get checks. That's from, all right, fair enough. Because <laughs> he's he sold. Uh, he passed away, and then uh, yeah, yeah. His, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. It was but he was a bad dude. Uh, 
800 pound gorilla no but we only it was only our first ep and first yeah. first album so none of our big records were with him so yeah so he had you know he came into the picture with kill switch um that dude what a shady asshole i remember the first time vaughn who had started managing kill switch we were at new england metal fest and he had never met morgan but knew full well that morgan had them in his fucking clutches and he read the deals and knew that they were just straight criminal and uh and i was like oh i know the dude i'll introduce you you know and i was like and as i called morgan i was like yeah vaughn killswitch's manager's here and he was like oh yeah, i'm gonna leave and i remember at one point pointing him out to vaughn and vaughn started walking over to him and the dude literally ran away like that's <laughs> it was like and i was like yeah that's but uh yeah anyway um no, I knew I wasn't going to do their next record. Like, I knew it, it was going well enough. Did you have them sign for another record, or was it just a one-off? We were going to do a one-off and an EP, I believe. I think that was in there that I just, you know, walked from. But So it was never a situation where, you know, sometimes a bigger label will buy the, the remainder of the contract. Yeah, I mean, that get. happened with a couple of records, but not with this one. No, gotcha. in this case, I was looking at, like, they're my friends. I think the band's brilliant. And I do own a catalog piece. So I know Victory were going hard at them, but I think they were leaning towards Century Media. Yeah. And I was kind of of the mind, well, those labels pale in comparison to Roadrunner. And so I, I brought it to Gitter and it was like, you know, and I knew he liked the band and was way into it. And I was like, dude, you should sign these guys. And uh, so it was Gitter, but also the, at the time, there was this dude who's the head of radio at, at Roadrunner. And this is, keep in mind, this is when fucking How You Remind Me is the biggest song on earth. Like, literally Nickelback were doing shit that nobody had done on the radio since Michael Jackson. Um, just true stories. And uh, Dave Lanco was the head of radio doing all that. So this dude was walking on water there. And uh, for whatever reason, Dave really liked Killswitch. And uh, so that definitely had a hand in uh, getting, you know, Case down with it as well. But I was just like, this is, a, you know, if they're going to sign someplace, and by then, Century Media were doing long-ass contracts and, yeah. you know, Victory's draconian contracts. Everybody knew about those. And uh, I was like, if they're going to go anywhere and do a deal like that, might as well come here because they've got more resources than any record label I knew of at the time. Did At the time, did they have that demo, the Alive Just Breathing demo out? Had you heard that yet? Because um, to me, that was like the game changer. I want to say... I believe, and I could be totally wrong, I think they wrote that after they got signed. I think the signing was based off of my record, of what really? they heard on that. Are you sure? Because I'm telling you, because that, that demo... No, because I, I remember... I, How, by the way, if that's true, that's fucking crazy. I feel like that's the case, but I could be wrong. Th those guys would, would obviously you know recall better than me. Um, well, I just remember hearing the, the, the three-song demo. It was uh, yeah. Fixation on the Darkness, the title track, and then... Um, What's the other track that's on there? I think it's Number Days was was on that. Yeah, and um, I remember it had production pretty similar to the to the album, and just being like, "Oh yeah, this yeah, is because Adam worked at Zing, so they yeah. did demo there and stuff." But like it was that. but it was such a step up from dude. Yeah, from, the, the songwriting was. I mean, but but even yeah, but I'm a lot of it is pretty, I mean, that song was just just massive. But it was like, oh, they're gonna be the next. Just from hearing the demo, you're like, oh, they're gonna be the. You're next. You're like, oh, this is gonna work. Yeah, yeah, uh, but on a. Yeah. On a big, on a, on a. I, I believe it was after because they were on Roadrunner with Jesse. Yeah. And then when Jesse left, I remember that was like I was like, yeah, we were all like gutted, you know, because that dude's voice is just amazing. He's a great dude. He's, you know, he's awesome talent. We're like, and uh, 
at the time I remember I was talking with Mike and I had heard uh heard demos of other people trying out dudes that we all know and uh and I remember talking to Howard on the phone because I was still we, we I think we were doing the spirals record back then and I remember he and I we were talking I, I was on company time I was at Roadrunner but oh, uh, but I was working for them right <laughs> and uh but I remember Howard being like he was like I can totally do this shit and I was like dude fucking you should I mean that would be awesome and he was like yeah but blood has been shed and all this sort of and I was like this like they ain't paying your motherfucking bills yeah <laughs> give, give it a shot and see yeah blood has been shed had those dudes were older guys in the band they weren't in a spot where they were gonna ever go full time yeah. sort of thing so actually I so I want to talk about blood has been shed real quick because I believe that I think yeah I think Alfred played this show it was it might have been a handy street nope it was Melody Bar I remember it no 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 it, I'm oh. telling you when when you yeah. saw I was there the first time you ever saw Blood oh, Shit right. in the basement. Yes. It wasn't Handy Street. It was some other like random New yeah. Brunswick basement. I literally have the fucking the flyers. And their somewhere. equipment could barely fit in the yeah, basement. Yeah, because they had like full they stacks. full stacks and shit. And, and our, everyone in that band was enormous. Yeah. And it was yeah. it was just like, and you were like, and I was like, and I think I told you about it because we had just played yeah. and I was like, yo, you got to fucking see this band. Yeah. And you were like, you saw that shit and you were like, yes. Yeah. They, just gave me. That it, was one of the most imposing bands I'd ever seen. Everyone in that band was enormous. Yeah. You know, like, uh, what was uh, one of the guitar players, JT or something like that? Um, he didn't stay in the band long after I signed him, but that dude was enormous. Corey, Corey, Corey was, would carry two uh, guitar cabinets at the same time. But not only guitar cabinets, maces, yeah. which are notoriously heavy. Yeah. And yeah, remember they played uh, the Handy Street and you had to walk up all those fucking stairs. Actually, I remember because they played with you guys and us. And I remember, I think it was Corey standing at the top of the stairs laughing at the other Corey because he was like, he's like, this motherfucker's carrying one in each hand. It's like, those, yeah, that dude was just. So, so it was that yeah. show. And then the show you're talking about, Melody Bar. So that was a very pivotal day in my life because it was basically the first, God forbid, headline show that was. That's right. I have that flyer somewhere. That was like we were a real headliner it was the first time we, like that we yeah. were we had we had come into our own yeah you're like this is our crowd there are, kill switch played that show too yeah so it was yeah. so it was god forbid uh i think nor i think yeah, you, yeah, we I think you guys were i think you played after kill switch so it was yeah so it was funny. so it was us you guys then kill switch so and uh this is when um pete was playing yep. yeah. second guitar first yeah. show they ever played fixation on the darkness at um, and he actually helped helps write that song. Adam was yeah. still playing drums, and then "Burnt by the Sun" opened. Oh, shit. But "Blood Has Been Shed" was supposed to play, and they ended up canceling. But Howard and Corey came to the oh, show. Oh, they anyway. came to the show. That's right. So it was all ferret bands, and mm. God forbid, on top. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that was a. I mean, that was a great show. No, everyone had everyone had yeah. had a great show, but it was it was like intimidating for oh, us. I can imagine. Yeah, because we were like still coming up and you have all these great bands and you're like oh and then we actually we're like oh people people do like us it's yeah okay. it's okay yeah there was no walkout no, no, no it was no. it was like yeah. we we held it down I remember my fucking grandfather came to that show that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome the <laughs> melody bar i'll miss that place forever i, I always tell my wife because i met her after the melody bar days like you know by then it was a fucking three-story parking lot for ruckers but uh that was one, literally one of my favorite places in the world. Do, did I ever tell you how I, I found out it closed? No. Uh, me and Dallas were at Jason Small's apartment where like Joanna and all of them lived in Mitch. Yeah. And we walked, we did mushrooms. And 
we had been on tour for like five, four or five months and hadn't been home. And then we like, we are mushrooms and you know, it was literally two blocks away, but it felt like it took us an hour to yeah. get down there. And we got down there and we're like, it was all closed up. We were just like, like what happened? Yeah. yeah it's like, yo man, mushrooms is crazy, man. It's like, I've been gone for years. <laughs> Time travel. Yeah. It was crazy when it closed. I mean, it just, you know, like that was, yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's a stupid Jersey thing. You know, they could make more money selling their liquor license than they could yeah. in keeping the place open. Here's the thing yeah. about that place. It, it sounded so good for no, like, I, I don't right. understand why it sounded so good in there. I mean, yeah, maybe because it was small. Yeah, there was no reason the acoustics would have been good. Yeah, but it, but, uh, some but bands, then if you go through the bands that played at that place, it was like fucking yeah. legend. Yeah, Jimmy World yeah. fucking played there at the drive-in. Yeah, I remember seeing Botch there. Yep, I, I saw think, Botch there like three times. Yeah. And that, yeah, that was. So Dillinger there, saw Converge there. Dead guy, dead guy played there, right? Did, did they were they around? I don't know if it was the original Dead I, Guy. Here's the thing: I never got to see Dead Guy. Really? Yeah. Even though I'm on the new Dead Guy documentary. <laughs> really? You know yeah. what? Uh, Nathan hit me up. I think me and Mike Olander are going to do a like a tag team Dude. interview with him for that. Um, you know, it's funny. You were talking about the ferret packaging before, and the the record that made me want to make all my records look awesome was Dead Guy Fixation on a Coworker. Well, what, what, Tim did all yeah. our work, right? Yeah, and it's I mean it's still like you know I thought it was just brilliant and uh, that made me want to do really well. Well, yeah, it felt but that but it seemed like the art direction for the records just seemed fresh. It seemed like yeah, I mean you know, cool that was all Portland, you know, yeah. like I mean he was you know like he he <clears throat> like it was cool that you know you know one of my the first dudes that that I hired that you know worked with me on everything was like you know our setup was always like the entire time I, I did ferret I never had my own office like portland was in every different place we moved it was always me and him in an office together because that was kind of one of our that was my a r style you know it was just like me and him bouncing back and forth and we had you know comparable tastes and um so that's kind of always how that worked but he handled you know like all the layout and stuff and and he not only for us but then you know he was doing well enough that he ended up you know he got hired out for a lot of people and you know, but but he he was the main reason that all our stuff like looked the way it did. Yeah. You know, I just agreed to pay for his ideas, but like some of his ideas were insane. When was he, he doing the actual designs, or he was like guiding someone? No, else? no, he would he he did all the designs. Like, do I have one here? Um, you know, like that that thing. You know, this yeah. is a radio, so so you obviously can't see it, but I'm pointing at. Like Listen, a, that thing looks and thing. sounds awesome. Okay, they yeah. can they can feel it through the microphone. <laughs> right. so you, you know, but like that's like you know, 50 or 60 layers. And he sat there with an exacto knife and, you know, he would just like print shit and come back and cut it out and print shit. And, you know, like he was like, had, I mean, he, he did that. Actually, most of the shit on the walls in here, he did. Yeah. But I, but I think, you know, they it's, it, it's interesting. Um, cause we had, um, what's his name? Uh, Don, Don Clark, Don Clark did, uh, did, 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 did determination. Yep. And, um, we used him a bunch until we just got to the point where we couldn't afford him. Yeah, uh, they blew up. He was in, that dude's an, an immense talent. But there was but there was a shift right in the way a heavy a heavy record would be kind of marketed, or there was a kind of an idea of like, oh, here's how metal record looks, and it right. was something that made it different than this other thing of okay, here we're just gonna put a giant skull on the fucking. Cup. Wait, do you, I mean I, I remember being at Roadrunner. Um, and Roadrunner had this standard thing that, you know, big labels typically do this, you know, and they were just like, all right, it's your band's first record. So no matter what, it's going to be a four page fold out, full color one side, black and white on the inside. And uh, and that sucks, you know, and I remember sitting there and got all the way to the point where I was like, why are you guys doing this? Like, you know, like 
look at the walls. There's gold records and shit on the wall. Let's make awesome records. And I remember talking to Case, the owner, at one point, and I was like, it will literally cost you one cent more <laughs> to make this shit full color on both sides. <laughs> and if you want to get crazy, 10 cents more and sky's the limit, especially with the the numbers that you're doing. And, and that was one of the times where uh, Case was always, he liked to argue. Yeah. Like, if he agreed with you before the argument was started. Was he pedantic? Yeah. <laughs> like, if he agreed with you. I was called pedantic you, recently, so. Oh, you were? Taking it. Apparently, I like to argue, too, so. But, yeah, he, like, even if he agreed with you before the argument started, he would, he just appreciated if you, he wanted you to make your case. Yeah. You know, and he wouldn't make it easy for you. And then, you know, if, so, like, I, that was a good conversation where he was like, all right, fuck it. Just yeah, well, well, so, like, well, right, well I notice sometimes certain things like that, it's like inception, right? Yeah. Sometimes even if you the, you don't convince them in the moment, you just plant the idea. Yeah. And then let, let them think about it for a week. And then it's like, okay, maybe maybe at a point. You right. know? Um, and I always kind of get into this thing about oftentimes people skimp on things in, mm-hmm. for short term, like, oh, we do this, but they don't realize that just a small investment in one thing right. will have benefits long down. And if you're just thinking, you know, the, I'm going to pinch here, like an inch here, yeah. you know, that it ultimately could, you know, just dis- disrupt. It could cost you money later. Yeah. Know? But it's also things that people notice, right? Yeah. It's things- well, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, I'm sure you had those moments. Like, I mean, now it's, it's, I guess it's different because of, you know, the digital culture and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, back in the day, I still remember, you know, a lot of times, you know, whenever we get new records done, we'd mail them to the band so they get it. But now and then we would actually I'd be able to be like, here's your record and put it in their hands. Like for the first time they ever saw it. And and that was one of the coolest things, you know, back then doing records where a band, you know, like takes a CD and looks at it, looks at the whole thing. And you can see, you know, like how proud they are of it and how stoked they they are that that they've got this and somebody made it. And that was like one of the, the coolest reasons to ever do stuff. You know, like to be able to like, be like, hey, here you go. Like well, we all did this together and here's your vision. And, uh, you know, and I never, A&R wise, I was never that guy. I was never coming to the studio to tell you to add mosh parts or, yeah. you know, like add a chorus or any of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I always said, you know, my A&R consisted of signing the band, like finding you and signing you because I got what you're doing and I got what I think you could become. And then maybe pushing you in the direction of a producer that I think could help. And then outside of that, like, you know, like that's where you got to let the artists do their thing, you know, like, and uh, so I was always, you know, outside of, you know, signing the band and finding a producer, you know, I was always pretty hands off as far as, you know, that. And it never really, I mean, the only time I think there was like one or two records where I really pushed a band to go with a producer and the end result. If the if I had let the band, if I hadn't pushed and let them do something else, it, I think it would have been better. You mm-hmm. know, um, I think there's only like two times over the course of of my career where that's happened. But where like I know, like I was like, all right, I fucked up, you know, and it was an expensive fuck up. And I think you know, like, so for the most part, I, I normally can get it on the same page with the band and and work through it like that. But uh, you know, now and then you miss. Yeah, I mean that's. At least you're willing to kind of take stock of that and say, oh, you know, I, 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 I thought this and I was wrong with it, but that's how life is, right? Yeah. No, no one's going to bat a thousand. Yeah, exactly. All, exactly. All, all, the, all the time. Um, so as the kind of label was, was growing, 
right? Mm-hmm. And especially you, you look as things kind of went into like that mid 2000s era, which was, you know, all these bands, like I, I felt like from, from where it started, everything was underground, everything was small. No one ever thought that w- bands like that we were doing would mm-hmm. ever be in the real game of right. of music and industry and playing with the biggest bands and doing the biggest tours. And, you know, and right around this time, this is, you know, you talked about OzFest yeah. and you had Every Time I Die on there. Did you have to do the buy on? Oh, yeah. I, so, so OzFest was, I like, I think that's where everything got real serious. Yeah. Like, you know, like obviously I already had left Roadrunner and worked for myself and all that. But that's when like that, I forget what, was it 2004? Four. Four. Yeah. So that was like, where the second stage was a hardcore show. Yeah, it became and Hellfest. Like, yeah, and it was, and I we were the last band to get on it with Every Time I Die. I'm pretty sure Darkest Hour was. Dark, what were they? Pretty sure, but I'm sure. And but, we were towards it because, but basically. We were like, one of the last ones too. Because <laughs> we were looking at it and, no, we, because I knew you guys were on it and we were, I was just, I remember, you know, Portland and Rick and I were all looking at it and basically. Throwdown got on pretty late too. Yeah, they got on before me though, because yeah. I remember talking with Josh about it. But basically, it was the sort of thing like our all these labels. I think are my peers. I like to think they're my peers. I mean, obviously, Victory was titanically bigger than me, but I still like c- c- could compete with them to sign bands and things like that. But like you know, Metal Blade, Victory, Century Media, Trustkill, like uh, yeah, I, I forget. But it was like all these peer labels. They all had bands on it, and we had the opportunity. And I was like, all right fuck we got to do it but i still remember yeah you know like, did you usually feel that was an obligation to to the band or was i it felt more no towards, like i felt like as a record label you need to be represented if we didn't take that step forward what well, basically if we stayed status quo and everybody else took this Ozfest size step forward that was us taking a huge step back yeah like i felt like we couldn't not do it and kind of a flex moment yeah you know and, and we had the utmost faith in every time I die to get out there and, and kill it. And they did. I mean, if you look, you know, like that band has an incredibly prolific career. But I, um, can I say something about yeah. every time I die on that tour? I think in terms of like going over, mm-hmm. they were kind of either in the middle road or lower tier. But it ultimately played in their advantage because it, it made me realize this thing about sometimes being uh like super well accepted in in one moment is really about that moment. Right. Whereas like you look at God forbid, where I think we were doing the exact sound that was the most popular right. at that time and we did really well. And then, but then things shift. Right. And so every time I die was ahead of their time. Right. They were like yeah. doing something that was a little left of center for that crowd. And if you just wait two or three years, all of a sudden they're almost their own thing. Right. Like they yeah. almost exist kind of, parallel to this to this whole thing and then and obviously have this long lasting great career but right. i just wanted to give that give that no 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 I, I, yeah I, it, I agree with you but it, it was it was crazy but i still remember you know like the day you know back then like i was handwriting all of our checks you know like and uh so i like literally hand wrote a check for seventy five thousand dollars. so were, you guys did all that you just like but they were recoupable it went with their with, yeah the band would have to recoup it yeah um but uh, but yeah, we were like, so okay, you know, like. And did fuck, you have to give them tour it. support too? Just yeah, to we gave them some tour support. They yeah. split a bus with someone. I forget who. Uh, on Earth. Was it was it on Earth? Yeah, I, I want to say on Earth. Yeah, I figured it was on Earth or Throwdown. I know we're Throwdown on that year. Yeah, but is that I, who Trustkill put on? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, it was them and Bleeding Through. 
Did they do them both the same year? Yeah, but I think uh, what happened with Throwdown is, is uh, Dave had him on my show, so I, he definitely told me. I think he got a loan from his dad. Okay. Or something from his family, yeah. Yeah, we paid for it straight out. You know, we paid for the bus. I mean, obviously, the band paid for shit, you know. Yeah. Like, we, we took, like, well. a, I want to say, like, 100, 110, something like that. Yeah. Because because basically, you pay to do, do the tour, and you don't get paid. Yeah, you don't get paid, and you the buy-on was $75,000. And so you have to literally pay just And you had to be in a bus. You couldn't do that tour in a van, no. you know. Well, one, there was this band, Magnify, that I think they were in a, an RV. That were that year? I don't even remember them. They were the only band basically that wasn't either in part of our scene yeah. or like, you know, there was basically it was like all the bands from our scene, OTEP, and like Devil Driver. Right. And then this band, they were just a straight up like melodic rock, rock band. band. Just, just how cool like... that no one <laughs> that didn't have a crew wasn't well known. So it wasn't yeah. like, oh, they're these fans. So they were just like sore thumb and no. You know what? I feel like I, that must I have been rough because everybody on that tour—it was really—it really was all dudes that were friends already yeah. that had all toured together and played, you know, and stuff. No, nobody cared, and they <laughs> uh, the, the the guitar player started doing like playing eruption, like in the set to like I need to put some metal in here. I need to get the, yeah. I need to get these people on my side, and yeah, I kind of felt bad for them, but they were really nice guys. Yeah, um, but yeah, but so during that time, just uh, things are starting to 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 change, and you guys kind of start leveling up, right? Yeah. Like you start, you know, you sign Poison, Poison the Well, Madball, In Flames, Chimera, Shadows Fall. Yeah. What was, was there like a, a different distro deal where you guys got more influx of cash? Were you able to yeah, do things we, like we that? Yeah, we literally went in and sat down with Red when we had the, basically it was all hinged around In Flames. Yeah. Like we had the opportunity to compete to sign them. They, they, when we signed them, they had 13 offers. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, mostly major labels and, and stuff like that. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, to his credit, my, you know, Conroy, my ex-partner, that, that deal was all him. He got yeah. that done. I, I the, the hours and hours he spent on the phone with their manager, you know, like, I mean, that, that really got that deal done. But we went in. And that was come clarity, right? Yeah, that was come clarity. Um, and that was cool. I mean, and to the, the band's credit, they really let us, you know, like, we're like, we have a vision. We love you guys. We really think we could, you know, and they were like, all right, like, you know, take your shot. Well, there was clearly but, uh, but something. We had to go into, we had to go into red and be like, Hey, so you guys give us a million dollars, please. And, uh, I remember like before we go into meetings like that, uh, I'd be like, dude, what are you going to wear? I was like, ah, Gotta put on my gimme money shirt. <laughs> gimme money shirt? Was yeah. it shiny? It was, you know, it was like a button up, like, you know, so it was like, I'm not gonna wear a so, t shirt today. So <laughs> just in, in trying to do like record labels for dummies, because I'm, yeah. I've been in, been in this industry for a long time and it's amazing how much I don't know. So a distributor gives you, gives you, or they don't give you that money, right? It's, right. Is it an advance? It's on, an advance, yeah. Okay. And then yeah. so how do you, you recoup that based on, how much you ship or how much you no, sell. So like, you know, they, you know, your distributor sells your records for you yes. anywhere, you know, whether it's digitally, physically, you know, ringtone, you know, whatever they like, especially when it was red, which is Sony, you know, so they sell everything for you and, uh, save for our web store or whatever we sold at shows. Um, so when we would take an advance like that, you know, they would recoup from, you know, our gross sales. Well, basically yeah. they would take their, you know, our gross sales would come in, they take their distribution fee. Now, are we talking the entire net or just like your, like, like, like what was your, um, what would you net 
out of out out of out of like a, if you sell a CD for if I sell twelve yeah, twelve so ninety nine, I sell a CD. You know, outside of whatever the store keeps. You know, I have my wholesale cost, and then the distributor. You know, your distribution fee is going to be anywhere from ten to twenty percent. You mm-hmm. know, something like that on and every it, unit. It always varies on every single unit. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they take that right off the top of what comes in, and so what's left is the net, and that would pass through to you. You know, you the after a bunch of fucking fees that they throw in there for storage and return. You know, like all that sort of stuff. But uh. But when you have a big advance like that, you know they take that entire net, you know, to recoup down the advance. So how many records? Red was always cool with us, so we would we would always do a deal where they would take, you know, of our net, fifty percent would go towards recoupment, recoupment, and fifty percent would go back to us. So we had working capital to continue. So how many records would you have to sell in order to kind of make that million whole? You know, I'm trying to think of like, you know, I mean, the Inflames record. Come Clarity, I think eventually did like over two hundred thousand. Wow, I, I believe. Yeah, that's it did a, really, really that's well. That's a great number. But you know, if you so look that at, was just for that one album. Yeah, we only had one. We just did the one. Um, e one, they went to E. I believe they went to E one right after that. Um, but I still think we to this day we made one of their best records ever. Yeah, um, and I think it's you know, as, far, as far as um, modern the because me, I'm a huge In Flames fan, and I love. Yeah all the the periods of the band a lot of people hate on the new stuff on on some of the newer stuff but i think with to me that was the album where they kind of like where they were they were shifting kind of this new sound but they like kind of hit the stride of like what new in flames is going to be right in my right no i I agree with you because i i i think i feel like the the record they did after that which i forget the name of i felt like they were trying to do the same thing was it soundtrack to your escape I mean, it might be missing one in between. Yeah, I, but I love I sure. love soundtrack to Escape. I'll I'll fight them off. Yeah. <laughs> the album before that, I did not like. Um, what's that? Oh no, no, soundtrack to Escape was the previous record. I'm yeah, that was of yeah, that was sense of purpose. Right. Okay. Yes, I love that album. That's one. Yeah, I I just felt like it was always. I felt like that was come clarity, but just not as good. Like yeah. I just I felt like they just hit it out of the park so with come just, clarity. Just just like you know. Just, you know, agree to disagree, buddy. <laughs> right. I like both. I love both <laughs> records. But, um, but, but yeah, f- with that one, I mean, we spent, yeah, like over, I mean, we, we spent like, you know, probably like a million dollars or so on it, like gross, but we did net like real money off of it yeah. in the end. So, you know, like not, I mean, like, you know, maybe a fifth of that, you know, came back as, as net. But, uh, but that was another one where we, that was like the, that was like an Ozfest moment yeah. that we're signing them was just like, you know, it was a was, big move. Yeah. Power wanted, move. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. We wanted to make a, a power move and that, but it did. It resulted us. We were able to get Chimera after that. Like a lot of people took notice and were like, oh shit, these guys, you know, can do some stuff. Yeah. So uh, real quick, I want to talk about um, some Nora stuff. So around kind of even a, around this era, um, Steve Evitz had left. Um, actually, it's actually going back before like Ozfest songs. He had left Tracks East, yep. and you guys would always record with Eric, Eric Rachel, Rachel, yeah, right. And I remember, you know, we were we, we had just done this album Gone Forever and did really well. We were trying to figure out, you know, who we we're going to do the next record with, and and there were pretty much two, well, I guess three records that Eric did. You know, he did the first Atreyu You yep. album, which I mean, I actually didn't love the way that album sounded. But then we heard um, Dreamers and Dead Men, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, Eric! I, like you might have showed me. I might have been at the studio or stopped out." I was like, "Yeah, I feel like you came to visit." Us yeah, and then. I was like, "Holy! Yeah. I'm like, holy shit! Fucking Eric's yeah. Eric's coming with the fucking thunder." Right, yeah. That was. And then I heard uh, "A Life Was Lost," a great artist. Yeah, that record sounds sick. And I was like, 
okay, I think we're going to do the next record yeah, yeah. With, 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 with Eric. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting. And, and even t- yesterday, I saw Kerrang! put out 21 best metalcore albums and uh, Dreamers and Dead Man was, was on Was that. on it? Yeah. That's, um, it's always flattering. But no, but it's this, it's this interesting thing where it's like you – you know, you're a label guy, you're, you're a guy who helps out his friends' bands, but then you have a band almost as a hobby or something that, right. that maybe you weren't, even though you were, you were doing a lot of it, but it kind of had this kind of seemingly long-lasting impact or even influencing a band, like, God I, forbid. I'm, I'm always surprised that, like, when I see, you know, like, people, like, <clears throat> bring it up, whether it's in press or just, you know, randomly on social media, something will pop up where people will, you know, be like, I I miss it. Cause I always felt like, you know, like I would listen to, uh, here's a perfect example. I would listen to like the Norma Jean Redeemer record. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to that and I would be like, I can never do what he's doing. And it's, it's what's going to hold this band back, you know, like, because, you know, I was telling you earlier, like there was that time we, uh, Nora did like a five day tour with Avenged Sevenfold, My Chemical Romance. So it was like, you know, uh, Avenged, My Chem and Nora. And, uh, you know, two of those bands went on to sell literally millions of records. And it's like, what what, what was the difference? Uh, Good singers versus me. (laughs) Well, but there's also an element of those. I mean, those bands are kind of generationally important. Yeah. But they also had that uh, star factor. Yeah. That. Is like say a band. Well, like, I couldn't be a star. Well, <laughs> I'm saying compared to 99 percent of bands, we're all we all look like fucking we're homeless compared. Oh to, yeah, like yeah. they're just that cool, good looking. Yeah, some of these dudes just look at it and you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, it's funny. My kid the other day was saying he was watching. He he loves Adam Sandler. Yeah, and uh, he was watching one of his movies and he was talking to me about it afterwards. He was like, why is he so famous and so big? I mean, and I was like, I don't know, dude's hilarious. He's pretty fucking talented all this sort of stuff he's like yeah but he's you know he's not i mean you're better looking than he is and i was like yeah but you know on the talent level i think adam's got me here's the thing people <laughs> for young adam sandler was like kind of like a bro beefcake you know he was yeah like you know he was a good looking guy he just he just stopped doing Giving sit-ups it, yeah you know it's like he could if it like that movie zohan he got all jacked and right, shit yeah Trust me, there's a there's a good looking guy in there. <laughs> Back in the, you know, I was like, I think about the time you did that Netflix deal for like what, like a hundred million or something like that. I think Sandler he, did. Yeah, I believe it. That's why all those. I mean, unfortunately, most of them aren't very good. But those, you know, all his movies come out on Netflix. Yeah, now, yeah. He did a Titanic deal with Netflix. Yeah, dude, his stand up is amazing. The new, I love it, dude. I couldn't because I was never like Mr. Adam Sandler guy. You, yeah. know, I, you know, I like Hanukkah songs. Like as that. long as he's not baby talking, I think he's great. Yeah, the fucking baby talking I can't deal with. But everything else he does, uh, I, you know, I think is pretty hilarious. Right. And that Chris Farley song is. I know we're getting off tra- track. Here, no, right? it's all, you know, it's all, it's all good. It happens. Some, you know, the, the, the show ends up being uh, tangential from time to time. Um, like but shout out to Adam Sandler if you're listening. We love you. We respect you, <laughs> and we think you're good looking. Put put me in your movie. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but just about you know having you know th- there's a million bands you know who you know maybe did way more touring than Nora did or put out more right. records, but for some reason you know the band does have some kind of legacy that people still tend to care about. Yeah, I mean I, I'm super proud of that, and and honestly surprised yeah you know um i mean i as one of those things or i mean we were lucky enough to tour i mean we we toured the u.s a bunch we did europe a few times we did japan canada a ton of times and and we, and we played with 
you know, bands that are, I'm friends with to this day. And, you know, so it had a massive impact on my life, but the fact that it had an impact on other people's lives is, is something that, you know, like I'll, I'll always cherish. I mean, that, that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. We um, would always try and do shit. Like, I think we, we, we played with you guys a bunch of times. Yeah, we, we, One of the most fun tours of my life was, uh, Canada with you guys. Oh, was that the, who was that with? It was, just, I think it was just us. Really? I'm like, fuck, I'm drawing a blank on this shit, man. But yeah, we, we, Oh no, was we, it the shows that we did with, um, there was some, it was a Canadian band. I forget who they were, but I remember they got thrown out of one of the places we were at cause they were, uh, rambunctious. rambunctious. I forget the name of that band. God damn it. I'm, but, see, yes, I know we're getting old. All right. All right. We're just like, remember that time? Nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, I mean, you know, when we were talking about doing the podcast, I was like, I got to remember stuff. And, and you know, I, I took that brake drum to my face in that car accident. And, uh, so legally I have a brain injury Yeah, and, uh, you know, I definitely, my memory is spotty here and there. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it just depends on, on, on what it is. Usually it's when it comes to like music stuff, like the stuff I, I enjoyed the mm-hmm. times of my life where I was happy to be there. I have a pretty good memory yeah. of the, the, the time. No, that makes sense. And that's the thing you, you, you look at like, dude, how lucky are we to have grown up in this type of music scene? Dude, you know? I was actually thinking like, about it. You ever, you ever read, um, outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? No. So. Basically, it's a study of su- success, and you know, one part of the book uh, was she actually borrowed from another like social scientist was the the ten thousand hour rule. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that basically if you spend ten thousand hours or roughly ten years focused on one skill, mm-hmm. and you put yourself in an elite position to be successful, and that's one half of success. The other half is completely random, right? It's like something a decision your like great grandfather made. You know, mm-hmm. 80 years ago, butterfly uh, effects. Being sort of thing. born in the right town and being the right age at the right time, and it got me thinking. Driving up here, thinking about, it, I was like, like, what are the odds that we would happen to live in New Jersey, right, at the time when you have these two awesome record labels, you have the best hardcore music producer mm-hmm. recording down the street from your house, yeah, literally 15 minutes from us, yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and like one of the most like bands would travel from all over the world to record a yeah, track. I mean, if you th- yeah, if you think about the bands that came out of like the New Brunswick, New Jersey scene, I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's such a range. Everything from like Lifetime to Dillinger Escape Plan, yeah, to, Thursday, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's you know, it's I mean, there's so many you know, obviously you guys. I mean, the bands that E-town, went on, you to, know, but even go beyond that, E Town, yeah. El Nino, Forty Below Summer. You know, e- you know, there's, I mean, there was. I mean, even just just the emo scene alone. Mm-hmm. How many of those bands kind of kind of? I mean, remember off. how big Saves the Day got? Yeah, and they were just a Lifetime cover band. There you go, and they got way bigger than Lifetime <laughs> yeah, ever, yeah. ever 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 got. Um, and then not, you know, we're not even talking about Mike Kim, you know? Who was, oh yeah, obviously. Duh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think did, are they the winners? Yeah. I mean, they're pretty much the winners. Yeah. They, you know how they're Gaslight, the Gaslight, yeah, and Gaslight, which uh, you know, yeah. There's, there's a lot. The, the, the point is. Just being in, in the right place at the right time kind of afforded all of these. Like, I was just, so I was listening to the records and I'm like, I remember being just a straight up metalhead mm-hmm. and then discovering the hardcore scene and being just exposed to these different sounds that ultimately ended up influencing God Forbid sound. Yeah. And the amalgamation of that ultimately ended up being something that sounded somewhat original. But if we hadn't been in this one place mm-hmm. to get, be exposed to that it just wouldn't have happened that way and it's yeah, it just, was it was i mean i i couldn't you know as much as you know now that i'm old and i've got a mortgage and shit and you know 
kids that I got to put through school, like living in Jersey, you're just like, fuck, it's a brutally expensive place to live. But, uh, you know, and I know so many people that are like, fuck it, I'm out. But uh, I mean, I just, I mean, this place was like the, the best thing that ever happened to me. And prior to, prior to moving to New Jersey, like my school experience growing up, like I was like, I was like legit after school special level bullied. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, like everywhere you lived or what? pretty much everywhere I lived. I had a goofy looking kid, you know, I had bad haircut, freckles and, you know, shit. So, uh, and I was always the new kid cause we moved all yeah. the time and stuff like that. But if you'd had uh, CrossFit, you would have fucked right up. now. Oh, there's, there's a whole list of people that are going to be like, <laughs> this dude's going to be walking down the street. He's like, why is this guy hitting me? I don't know. It was like, but I remember who you are, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, like until I moved to Jersey, it was, you know, like I like Jersey was literally the best thing that ever happened to me. So, you know, I, I always love this place and the, the music scene, you know, it, it's my reason for my career. You know, I met my wife, you know, through this and, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it's been real good to me. Okay, I want, I want one more uh, ferret question, then we'll move on to some good fight stuff. Um, is it fascinating to you? Because it definitely is to me. So maybe this makes this a rhetorical question mm-hmm. that disembodied and martyr AD mm-hmm. would be like the, some of the most influential bands of like modern metalcore now. <laughs> like, oh, where it seemed yeah. like that that sound just mm-hmm. kind of died with those bands, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like knocked loose. And Code Orange sound like disembodied, like tribute bands. Dude, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I love the whole 90s metalcore nostalgia thing going on right now, obviously, because 90s metalcore was my shit. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, those two bands in particular, I mean, and it's funny because it's, you know, the same people wrote the music for both those bands. And it's, you know, look how far ahead of their time or, you know, or how impactful what they did wrote. But dude, that first, that first Martyr album. I was always bitter about the second one. So I, true story. I've never listened to that record. The second Why? Martyr record. Cause I was supposed to put it out. Oh, what did it come out on? Victory. Oh, but uh, I think I, I think I literally forgot that. I think Martyr is one of those bands that, you know, if you would have it, like they just missed yeah. that kind of breakout time when like, you know, bands like us and unearth yeah. darkest hour, like, like, I feel like they could have been really big. I remember they, they had a, a moment where there was a shot Cause I was still at Roadrunner, and uh, and we got them on an In Flames tour in the U.S. And I forget something happened um, with the drummer; mm-hmm. he couldn't do the tour. Um, so at the last minute, we literally and I worked all this out. I remember uh, it's when uh, so Island Def Jam had bought Roadrunner at yeah, the time. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, Nickelback was popping off and all this sort of stuff. So there was a Nickelback show in Jersey. And uh, so Lear Cohen chartered like a bus, you know, like this giant party bus type thing. And he's like, I'm bringing the Island Def Jam people. We're going to stop by Roadrunner and pick those people up. And we're going to drive everybody out to the show, you know, for anybody that, you know, wants a ride. And I was like, I want to hang with fucking Lear Cohen. That rules. So and uh, it didn't work out the way he wanted to. So there was like literally like seven of us on this massive bus. Right. And, uh, did they have booze though? They did. Okay. They did. And Leor bought something that I'm sure is more expensive than anything I've ever drank in my entire life. And uh, but so I was like, and nicest dude ever. I mean, later on he was, you know, uh, the you know he was the dude that bought Ferret. Um, but uh, you know, we were chatting and stuff, and then you know I get a call, and that that's when like this whole like oh we can't do the tour. 
like you know, tour starts tomorrow. So I remember going to the back of the bus. Have you motherfuckers ever heard of a fill-in drummer? Right. Yeah. So we literally we flew Rat Boy from Every Time I Die. I was like, no, no, you guys are doing this fucking tour. We have to figure it out. So we literally flew Rat Boy out and like shipped his drums. I think it cost like I don't even remember what. Like we like literally UPSed his drum set out to the fucking tour and like, uh. but uh, but yeah, they did that tour, and uh, and I was like, this is it. I mean, these guys are gonna pop off. And then I, I. I don't think that was, I mean, that wasn't their last tour, but that was one of the last things they did with me. And then they had a hiatus for a minute while they figured out lineup stuff. And then, uh, you know, the victory thing happened. But dude, honestly, I think if those guys played full time today, they- Dude, I saw them in LA at the Roxy with 18 Visions. And it was like the heaviest thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, I was like, this is, they sound, and here's the thing, them and Disembodied live always sounded so good. So good live. When they played- uh, this is hardcore. I think it was two years ago. Either way, it was Martyr one night, disembodied the other night, and both sets were just. I mean, Damn. this is hardcore is always just insane. And uh, but when they came out, I was just like, I mean, it was just. I mean, literally, I'm standing there at one point, and somebody threw a knife up on stage that had fallen out of somebody's pocket, and I was just like looking at just dudes murdering each Brother, other. You know, you know, know my com- <laughs> know my comparison is to like this is hardcore, like like hardcore shows in general. Yeah, it's like Def Comedy Jam. Remember like Def Comedy Jam? Like people just they couldn't just laugh. Oh yeah, they had to like flying out of their oh, seats. Oh my god! Yeah, oh, they're like yeah. you know doing backflips. Like I'm like, listen, I, I I know you like the band, right? You don't like them that much, all right? right. You just you're you're overselling. It's because it, you're right? here. Yeah, I'm like, yo, that riff isn't that good. <laughs> all right, calm down. All right, I, I get it. It's like it's the hardcore show. The the crowd actually is the show. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, dude. I mean, no, absolutely. It's funny because uh, and they know that Ross always is like, "You got to get us on." Uh, this is hardcore, and Joe has always been super good to me, and you know, he's he's an awesome guy. Um, but I've never pushed to do that because I was like, "You don't want to be that band that no one moshes for at this is hardcore." It's yeah. like you're really fucking up. And and Nora, we were notorious for just our mosh parts were few and far between. Yeah. So like you know, save for you know nobody picks for yes, the but drummer here, but and then everybody about, just here's the thing about shit. this is hardcore they mosh to the feedback <laughs> that's true oh yeah all right? that's it true. has nothing to do with the actual music <laughs> they do dudes up there tuning and people are like fist fighting it's yeah. you know as as my homie abedo he used to be in uh fucking madball he was like we like he was like yo he's like he's like band is terrible he's like people go see him and they're just they're hearing the record <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it doesn't even matter they're just like it's it's all about the mental St- you know, status that you've built up, right? And yeah. then that's what happens at the show. It doesn't like, mean the bands aren't good. I'm just, I'm just taking the piss, guys. I'm, I'm, yeah, no. Don't beat sure. me up, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so speaking of of that deal, um, that so you sold ferret. How does how does this even come about? So we had, you know, we did that. We went and asked Red for money for the Inflames deal. I don't remember if we went and asked him for money for anything after that. But either way, you know, we had staffed up. We had a lot of people and uh, we were selling a lot of records, um, but we were spending a ton of money doing it. And uh, I think it was going well enough that, you know, we were like, all right. I mean, we had our eyes got real big. We were like, all right, fuck. I mean, we literally were sitting there be like, all right, we're going to be Roadrunner. Like that's our goal. That's mm-hmm. what we, that's what we want to do with Ferret, and uh, so like, how do we how do we grow this? How do we just keep getting bigger and bigger? And uh, you know, Red were at a spot where we're like, all right, well, you know, we can't keep giving you money. You got to make some of it back. And we were, but we weren't. It hadn't all made back yet. And uh, you know, and I think to a degree, we got a little impatient. You know, um, 
we knew we had some good stuff coming and we really wanted to go hard after it. And uh, we had uh, some people that were integral for helping us grow at Red had left and were at Warner um, in like pretty high up positions. And, you know, we had some conversations with them and uh, we're kind of like, well, what would you think about? Because like, the initial thought like, oh, well, what if you guys would, you know, do us a distro deal, pay off Red for our debt and then give us more money on top of that and we'll come over there. And they were like, yeah, well, that money, you know, that's where it starts. So that's how the conversation started. Um, but then the numbers got big enough to be like, well, no, there's no way we can do this without some level of equity. And uh, and we're like, all right, well, fuck it. Let's have the conversation and see where it all goes and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, at one point it got to the point where, you know, because we were always like, a non-controlling share, blah, blah, blah. We'll write our own ticket, do it our way. And then, you know, got down to the point where like, no, no, it's 51% that we're selling. Like, so it's a fully controlling share and, and all that. And, uh, and I don't think by, by that time we were far enough into the deal that, and the, the numbers were big enough that it just seems like it made sense. Like, you know, we had a plan where like, we can absolutely like, this is going to allow us to grow. You know, we've got contracts they're literally not like nothing's going to change. We're not moving into their offices. They're, they have no control over our staff. It, you know, literally, you know, it it was it was at the time a really fucking good deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so so I, I I wasn't aware that you still had part of the company. So it's so it's on. well the way it works like so you do a deal like that and they buy the fifty one percent and then two or three years later you know depending on the deal there's an option. So they buy the rest of it at a multiple. So assuming the company grows, we get another check. And then there's some triggers that where we get employment contracts and shit like that and all that. So that's when they would get the other half. Or if the company hasn't grown and you're still in debt, they basically just roll up the remaining 49% and they get it and you don't get anything. Gotcha. Except deployment contracts so they, sort of thing. But they get it either way. Either now, way, they were going to get it. It so was just a matter of whether we were going to get paid more for it or... Nothing more. Nothing. So once they get the full uh, 100%, you're still kept on to run it? Yeah, they they we had in our deal like uh, employment contracts. So like so we would, we would still be there for X amount of years at a certain salary. Yeah. But, you know, what happened with us was literally... I mean, we did that deal, I think it was July 2007 or maybe a little earlier. I have to go back and really look. But Tower closed two months later. And when Tower closed, the music industry fucking changed overnight. Wow. I mean, basically, every other retailer shit their pants. And the way the way retailers bought CDs, it never made a lot of sense. Yeah, so like, they would buy, like... Way too many? Yeah, they would be like, all right, they estimate, this is how many we think we're going to sell a week. And we're going to buy six months worth you know like instead of just reordering fucking later and things like that um or even longer so there was like the and then tower closed and basically all the retailers were like we're going to carry a three-week supply yeah so well yeah. that was the beginning of the end of the cds absolutely yeah. so it was just basically so our, well, our deal bad timing oh it was the worst timing like our deal was predicated on a world that stopped existing Two months after we and, did and, deal. And just and this is just out of like general curiosity. I mean, no one saw this coming. <laughs> I mean, we definitely didn't. Was that, so I mean, you know what? I mean, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm, I'm sure there's a smart dude out there that like figures something out. But like, is it just that when business is good, you're just into the 
good business. No, I mean, <laughs> so that's how business is, is. If you can convince someone to buy something and convince them to buy more, you're just going to keep selling and selling. Yeah. Like, and which was always weird with music because, you know, we always took returns. So if you sell somebody 100,000 CDs and uh, what was it? Victory did that Hawthorne Heights record. Um, he shipped like a million records and took like 800,000 returns. You know, like by the time you pay fees. So that's how it fucked. actually went gold. Is it never really, it actually didn't sell those records? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Because your gold records and stuff is, you know, is predicated on what you sell by, i.e. shipping. Ship. Like yeah. stores are buying. So them. you can, as we say back in the day, ship gold. Ship, exactly. <laughs> ship gold. I used to always say back then, like a gold record meant, you know, like that was a write-off because the, what, what labels would have to do to get a record to go gold, the amount of money they would have to spend and the, the records they'd have to, remember cleans back in the day? That was records that you gave stores for free so they could sell them for five bucks so you get the scans, you know, so. No, actually I didn't know about this. Oh yeah, cleans were like a huge thing. So you would fraud? always. Is that fraud? I, no, it was just like you'd go to like a vintage vinyl. So vintage vinyl were a weighted scan. So yeah. you wanted vintage, so vintage sold a record it counted as you know five to seven sales to SoundScan. Whereas if Circuit City sold that record, it counted as one. So does, by the way, do you think the, the weighted system kind of indicates that we never really knew what people really were selling? Oh yeah, I mean, it was all, there was, there was always angles to everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like the same thing with radio and payola and all that sort of shit, you know, like the stuff that, I mean, I remember, but you, know, you but let me see, but you would know because you know what came in and you know what came back. Oh yeah, we would know for sure. Yeah. yeah, that's why I always said that like a gold record means you lost money. So based on that, knowing what the scan was mm -hmm. and you knowing exactly what went in when it count, do you feel like scans were pretty accurate overall? I mean, <sighs> that sounds like a no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you, you remember you remember venue scans. I remember because I had sound scan yeah, access. We I remember never, sitting at like. Uh, but God forbid, yeah. we never lied on that. Yeah, dude. I mean, we know. I don't think we ever even turned in venue scans. But obviously, I mean, there were bands like, and I'm friends with. No, dudes, I always so hear bands. Anything, but bands that are turning like we were sitting there doing the math. I remember we were on tour once. It was like the Bronx and Every Time I Die and Poison the Well and Nora, and we're all sitting backstage. And I had sound scan access, um, so we all pulled it up on a computer and we're all just looking up all the other bands. And, you know, there was one band in particular we're looking at and we were like doing the math. We're like, we know they can't possibly have this many CDs on tour. Like they can't, there's no what way. What were they saying that they were selling? They were like, you know, two or 3000 a week. You know, on the road. On the you know, and it, cause you can see what's venue scans versus what's, you know. I feel like that would be, I mean, SoundScan eventually got yeah, but I'm sure that would be a red shit. flag. Like they yeah. like send out you know like a SoundScan agent, you know, yeah, and be like, hey, uh, yeah, they eventually got wise. We're to that, here for the audit. It was it was a little wild west early on, <laughs> you know. I think because initially SoundScan wasn't anything because most the big bands they didn't sell their own CDs. They had a merch company. The merch company would actually send a person on the road to sell their merch and CDs and stuff. I know that's what Bad Wolves does. We got see, that's yeah. uh, just the big dogs. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, when they started letting hardcore kids turn in sound scans, we were like, oh, I'm going to make some shit up. Do you, did, do you ever hear about anyone doing the thing where first week, like, let, let's say it's some band and like they're the dad of one of the guys, man, is rich. They'll go out and like buy like 5000 CDs just to like. Get oh, yeah. yeah. Big first no, week. I knew bands because you remember back in the day, first week, Best Buy would always have the CDs. So on, like seven ninety nine. Yeah. So, so they go buy them and resell them at shows. I knew bands that were on tour. Like they would drive into the town they were playing, go to a couple Best Buys, buy every CD that Best Buy had in stock, which scanned. Yeah. For seven ninety nine. Resell them, scan and then them again. That night, 
that's what they sold. Scan them again, make their money back. I was like, actually, they make more money. Oh yeah, yeah. Because if you if you buy it for seven nine nine, the show yeah, you can sell it for twelve selling, bucks. Yeah, they're or... selling for ten fifteen bucks like that. And yeah. Boom! Wow, it's the very hustle. shady. Very the shady. So, did you ever have just the sentimental kind of idea of like I built this thing, I signed all these bands, and now eventually this era is kind of going to come to a close? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was definitely like it, it was a because did you have bands that you had been working with forever that were still on the label? There was. Um, the only band that really ended up, I won't call it a casualty of this, but the only band that got it was Misery Signals. Yeah. You know, because um, I had done this, you know, in a manner where I, we knew it was coming and the deal, you know, those deals, it takes so fucking long. Um, so I, I kind of wasn't signing a bunch of stuff, you know, because I, I didn't. Kind of knowing it was Yeah, coming I didn't want to burn anybody, but Misery Signals still had a record left and Devil Wears Prada still had a, a record so what, left. So what, what would happen? Like who would... Me, like who like was is the plan so they they buy the label mm-hmm. but it's their it's their uh it, you know goal to keep it going right yeah at the, yeah at the time absolutely the goal was to keep it going they, their goal was so much so to keep it going that like so when we left ferret because initially we sold it and we were still there yeah so like the bands didn't really i mean all they knew is we had more money to yeah. spend on them you know, it was really when we knew we were going to leave, we were going to leave Ferret um, because, you know, the finances were when Warner were like, listen, this shit doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. You were telling me before, before yeah. we started recording that yeah. you, you had a certain number you thought you were operating at and yeah. then that was reduced. That was drastically reduced. And they yeah. were like, all right, so we want you and, you know, basically two other dudes to come work out of our offices and yeah. then wipe out all your other overhead let let all your other staff go close your office and that sort of stuff and which fiscally 100 percent made sense like i get yeah. it you know but at the same time i was like yeah but all the dudes that i hired like i just hired my friends yeah like i didn't take resumes you know like yeah. i hired like these are people that i love that were in my wedding that i've grown up with and shit like that so it's not like we you know so like just letting them go didn't so we that's when it because I could have stayed at, at Warner, but there would have been a lot Ferret. more casualties. But yeah, everybody would have had to go. So we figured a way out where we're like, all right, where we actually did it, and we only only one person didn't come with us from Ferret to Good Fight. Yeah. Like Good Fight is literally with the same staff that Ferret was, except for one dude, because we're starting a new label, and he was our head of sales at the time, um, and like we have no catalog or, you know, anything like that. So it kind of had to go back to where I would used to be head of sales. I had to go back and do that shit again. You know, it didn't make sense to have somebody on, but Warner brought him in full time for as good or better salary and had him like overseeing ferret there after we were gone. So what's the current state of ferret? Oh, it's fucking shelved at Rhino, you know, like it's, so what does that mean? It's, it's dead. So is it, so do they still, does a back catalog like still exist in some kind of yes. perpetuity? Uh, yeah, the back catalog is still like, I mean, it's all up digitally yeah. and then you can go in and license it. Like you'll see other, like I've licensed some, like, you know, released some stuff, but, and you'll see other labels like, uh, you know, somebody just released one of the Zaya records and somebody did some of the Every Time I Die records. Um, oh, I almost said something I should have said. Um, someone's going to release another one of the we old can cut records out, soon. Oh, okay. Just let me know. Um, yeah, no. 
<clears throat> but yeah, someone's going to release one of the old ferret records soon as an anniversary. Cause I went to try and do it. And I was like, and they're like, no, someone else has already lined it up. And it's like, fuck, I should have done that. But, uh, but the deals to license them, the, so, like the vinyl are fucking terrible. Like in, in your opinion for them, was that actually a good deal for, or for like for, for Warner? Like, do oh, they, they made their money back. So it was multiple like, times over yeah. for sure. So is it, is it just a thing with independent labels and maybe and I'm not even, maybe I know it's a completely different, uh, landscape now than it was 10 mm-hmm. 15 years ago but is it do they kind of in some regards inevitably have this kind of finite uh like yeah. lifespan i mean i haven't seen anybody that's been bought the way we were where the labels continued to thrive you know like fearless is doing great right now yeah you know who, who knows how long that'll last but they've got really really good people running the fearless aspect of of warner and uh and it as far as i can tell it's going pretty fucking well. So I think that brand will continue. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, any of a number of other labels that got bought, you know, eventually they just kind of get eaten by the machine. Yeah. It's like kind of corporate raider kind of mentality, but I guess from their perspective, right. They just, um, if it, it might as well be widgets or well, especially or now, because now or, with, with, uh, you know, how, um, you know, prolific, streaming has become yeah. um there's i mean i've had a couple offers for people to buy good fight already like yeah. and it's not from music people like yeah. legit like vc companies and stuff because basically people just want catalog because you know streaming has been huge for catalog sales yeah you know whereas before you know catalog sales were tricky because there was only so much space in an actual physical record store they got to carry all the new shit how much of the old stuff you know like could they carry now it's just all there and you know so streaming's been really really good for catalog and you've got people out there actively trying to buy it up i mean i forget who one of these big stock companies that everybody listens to like a year or so ago put out a report on like you know their where they envision music going and just like the like they just expect titanic growth for music you know in the coming years which is cool because we just weathered a decade-long storm of like oh we should have figured out something else to do with our lives (laughs) yeah and and how do i how do i sell something that people can't get for free yeah well i mean I, i listen i think in many ways that storm has been weathered it's it's rebounded it's not it's not equitable in terms of like it's not a, a fair system in terms of how uh things are cut up in terms of like what the oh, band yeah. artists get and stuff like that um which is something obviously we have to work on and yeah like, so you uh, so tell people listen you, you don't get what you deserve you get we have the uh, leverage to negotiate yeah and if you want more you're gonna have to fight for it i feel like what what's happened with streaming i was talking with somebody else about it the other day i feel like it's kind of wiped out the middle class of music like there's a number of bands like if, if you if you're popping off on streaming like financially like that can result in legit real revenue for you but all the middle of the road bands you know where they used to be able to sell 30 40,000 cds or something like that you know yeah. like if you're you're not getting that equal influx yeah, like of... what that re- amounts to in streaming is fuck all yeah you know so like you're only options are you know your only source of revenue really is is you know touring and merchandise and you know if so it's just i feel like it's you know there, there's you know the big bands are still killing it you know and and obviously the touring market prior to well it's covid it's, it's ex- was pretty it's, exciting it's like everything in the in the tech era uh, the uh windfalls are exponential right yep. so if i'm you know bruno mars or something like that 
I'm already popular. Yeah. But then I also get filtered more into more playlists. I get filtered into more algorithms that I'm going to get played more on Katy yeah. Perry radio. Yep. I'm going to get played on this. So it it has this thing of kind of a look. You know, you, you, this happens all the time. Like uh, Taylor Swift did it, where she comes and she's like, "Yeah, I'm not going to be on your shit till you give me this rate." Right. And she can do that. Yeah, exactly. she's Taylor Swift. Or like, yeah, but if Nora's like, "Yo, Spotify, you, yeah. you can't have our shit unless you're going to pay us fairly," they're like, um, "Yeah." But same thing. Tool yeah. did the same thing. ACDC did the same yeah. thing. When you have enough leverage, you can do that. So, you know, I. I think to some degree, you know, the top 1% or 1% or 1% of, of working artists have always gotten the windfall. But yeah, those mm. things have definitely gotten gotten worse. But the, and I think the the, the way you've, you have to figure that out, the only way it kind of works in those middle class bands favor is you have to put your own records out. You have to own your masters. Because right. if you're getting all the money from it, mm. it can actually be okay. But if you right. have to split it, then it becomes... Yeah, I mean, I've gone through that. You know, there was a period there where, you know, I think ACDC did it and Clutch has been doing it for years, probably better than anybody. Like yeah. bands that own their own masters and do their own thing. Um, but, you know, we've looked at that you know, for artists, Biggie and I like, you know, toyed around the idea of starting like an, another, uh, I think we we're going to call it lion's share. Like this, this thing that we kind of came up with to like offer bands where it's like, you own your masters and we'll do the work for you and stuff like that. And the more we like looked into it we're like, all right, you start like, all right. So X band, somebody wants to give them a hundred thousand dollar advance. Um, and then pay for the marketing and all that sort of shit on top of it and utilize their staff to do things like publicity and stuff that we would have to hire somebody to do. And so we were looking at that. All right, if you take the advance, you won't own the masters, but you know, so you get, you know, this hundred grand versus if you do it on your own, you own your masters, but these are all your costs. So this is how many records you're gonna have to sell before you make your money, before you before you walk away with that same hundred grand. Yeah. And it's like, all right, it's gonna take you a couple years easy you yeah. know and it became one of those things where like i think that's why it's fallen off some you know where bands are like if there is a label like that's willing to actually still kick up real money they're just like yeah fuck it you know um you know owning the masters down the line would be great but you know basically if a record label selling your you know if they can make your record you know if they can pop it off you know it's big ads for all the other things that you're going to do to make money off of be it publishing merchandising touring you know that sort of thing yeah well and, and it also kind of um filters down lifestyle wise right like uh so people who listen to pop music and hip-hop yeah. stream more mm -hmm. than other people so though you look at the numbers it's like for hip-hop it's so off the charts oh yeah absolutely. compared to to, the, to these other genres so it's not really uh equitable in, in that regard and you know, like me i think there's situations where let's say like me i give ten dollars to uh, a month to Spotify or yeah. Apple, Apple Music. If I listen to like eight bands, mm -hmm. like my ten dollars should go to the to eight those bands. Right, like right. It shouldn't just go to some pot. Or right. I think there should be something like this where there should it should be consumption based, right? If one right. person, if I uh, pay my ten dollars and I only listen to five hours of music, right, and then that person listens to hundred hours of music, now all those plays get paid the same amount of money. Right. But what we're putting into the system money-wise is the same. Yeah, you as a listener. So that doesn't, or like what's stopping someone from being in their house and having eight iPhones and 10 fucking uh, I mean, things. Just, that just, was an issue there. I, I remember at one point someone reached out to me and was like, hey, you want to, you know, offered me to get in on this thing where it was a dude who literally, you know, it was like a, bots, a right? play farm, yeah. you know, like, 
And uh, I was like, that's the shadiest fucking thing, you know? But like, no, but when you but make sure, the, when you make the system based purely on plays, yeah, and then you, you're encouraging people to do that. Yes, shit. Yeah. that's that's the incentive. No, and like, what's like, for example, you go on YouTube, right? And it's like, uh, what was that? You know, like uh, Despacito, right? It's got 10 billion views. I'm like. There's no way that's possible. Right. You know why? Because I know how many people live on Earth. Yeah. All right. And I know at <laughs> you least start doing the math. And I yeah. know at least a third of them don't have fucking internet access. Right. So fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have ten <laughs> yeah. billion views. It's bullshit. It is. No. No. Dude, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. You start doing the math on some of these things, and I was like, yeah, no, it's it's that shit's not possible. Yeah. But you know, I, and I get a lot of people are upset. You know, like uh, some of my friends have got into it. You know, about I'm just like, yeah, you know what? You have to deal with the system as it is. And if you want to change it, you need the people at the top to change it. Like they ain't gonna listen to me. Maybe they'll right. listen to Usher or fucking right, Kanye. Exactly. They ain't gonna listen. Well, it's to like my you ass. said before with Taylor Swift. You know, like yeah, she. But here's she the thing: was in a spot to be like, the system works to their advantage. So why are they gonna change? Yeah. It? Why? Yeah. Exactly. You know, they're getting more, even more of the pie than they probably deserve, which right. is a lot. So it it is what it is. Anyway. Um, so actually, you know, we've been on for a while, but I just real. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't know how long people will listen this much longer. I'm not that. Listen, this is uh, to me it is, and we had, <laughs> we, had, we had a lot to get through, so I knew it was gonna be long. But I, but for me, it's like my show is not the surface thing. It's like when we go, well, this is like if you want one interview to talk about what you did, you come here for the right. whole fucking story. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about a uh, good fight real, right. real real quick, and um, so that that was more. The idea behind it was you didn't want to dissolve your staff. And yeah, that was exactly it. Like we liked what we were doing and how we were doing it, and you know we 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 still had our vision and uh, and really felt like, you know, we <clears throat> if we could start from scratch, you know, we make it work. And uh, you know, knowing the new landscape with was that intimidating. Uh, yeah, I mean, same, we, we did the same thing we always did, you know, like we went and got funding when we were going to start it. So we knew that we could, we had, you know, full years worth of salaries for everybody. And, and you that, know, that funding sort of stuff. through distribution. Yes, funding through distribution. And, uh, you know, so it was less intimidating then because, you know, I'd done it a couple of times before. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no. And, and honestly, you know, like, I was pretty confident that, that we could, we could make it work. And, uh, you know, it started out really strong. It, it, it was definitely a... Did you ever feel worry that maybe you'd lose your fastball in terms of being able to pick the right bands or, or feel uh, in tune with, like, where things were going? That, so that was one of the things I learned while I was at Roadrunner. You know, like, a guy like Case who owned Roadrunner was smart enough to realize at a certain point you got to hire these younger dudes like Monty or Gitter that have their like their ear to the, the mm. world. And I and I knew it at some point I wasn't gonna be out there in the thick of everything and and be the tastemaker sort of thing. I had to be, you know, smart enough to realize that, you know, there were other people that were out there more into it than me and, you know, trying to take their opinions into consideration and stuff like that. And uh you know, so and we just made a point of always like, you know, the bands that are already on your label, like they're always, you know, for the most part, you know, 95% of the time they're going to be younger than me and they're out there. And just like, I make sure to make a point of listening to them and being like, dude, if anything you think is cool, bring, to, you know, bring our way and, you know, we'll research it and do stuff. So, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on, on what we were doing and that we'd be able to, to keep up with things. And you guys are, how are you connected with E2? E1? E1. E1. So, E2, Jesus. So we, you know, we started Good Fight in one manner. And uh, 
you know, like basically running it exactly the way we ran ferret. Everything was, this was totally the same. And, uh, you know, things got tight and, you know, in my opinion, if we had stayed the course, you know, a couple of us taking some haircuts, it absolutely would have worked. We had, we had a plan and a vision. It was two stages. We got to the first stage. We had to fight through the second stage and we would have, it totally would have worked, but you know, that just wasn't in the cards. Not everybody had the patience to do that. So, um, so we basically ended up changing the entire way we did the, you know, the entire label setup changed. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately at the time I had the, you know, the, the record label portion of it fell to me. So I had that, um, which had our debt. Um, so I was in a spot where I was like, all right, well, got enough, you know, the debt's an issue, cash flow's an issue. So getting new records out was a, was a problem, but I didn't want to dead the brand and go just get a job someplace else or give up or anything like that. So, uh, I did a deal with E1, Scott Gibbons over there, who is, uh, Shout out Scott Gibbons. one of, one of the best dudes in the entire music industry. He licensed uh, a God forbid, old God forbid records. So. He did nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Now he, he, he's the best. And he came up with this idea of what we were going to do. And, uh, so he, he brought good fight in there kind of as like an A&R and marketing imprint, um, which, and then I got red to allow me to do that. Cause technically, you know, legally based on my deal with red, I couldn't do that. Um, but the people over there, Bob Morelli in particular, who was, you know, he was the president of red for a long, long time. Excellent individual. Um, he let me do it. And, uh, so basically it got to the, it became, there was almost like two good fights. Uh, we, we kind of call it, you know, good fight E1 and then good fight proper. So there are bands, different bands that are streamed through the different. Yeah. Yeah. So there's stuff that, you know, anything on good fight proper, you know, is a masters that I own bands that we sign. Um, and you know, we run that we're distributed by the orchard and, and we do those. And then there's other bands where that are going to need like bigger budgets or, you know, just sonically fit better that I signed to E1. Um, you know, and, and good fights always involved with those bands, but they're on, they're on E1. And, uh, you know, and that was one of the things like I envisioned doing it until I got the label out of debt and then back on its feet. And, uh, you know, that happened five years ago, you know, like, uh, and the label's doing great, but, you know, E1, I just realized it's, it's, I started there in 2000, end of 2012, and I've worked with the exact same people the entire time, which, you know, at big companies that, you know, rare, it's rare. Yeah, it's rare. Like major labels like, oh, you know, they sign a band and they've got an A&R guy and a marketing guy and a product manager. And like by their by record number two, like those dudes are fucking gone and you're making new friends that might or may not give a shit about you. You know, E1 friends. runs like a like an, you know, especially E1 heavy. It runs like a, like a. I mean, honestly, it feels like an independent, like, you know, hardcore metal label. It's always the same dude. So like I've gotten, you know, super, super tight with those people. I love working with them. And, uh, you know, and, and we've done some really cool shit and, you know, sold a bunch of records. So, And you guys, uh, Good Fight also has a management. Yeah. So management is, you know. Are so, you involved in that? Yeah. Yeah. So like, but I don't own that. Yeah. So that's like, it's me and, you know, and, and Biggie and Dog uh and, and chuck and then you know like uh tim's at house did those start um, the label and the management start simultaneously yeah we were all together um and so we just changed up kind of how 
at a certain like back in, I think it was like 2012 or so, we kind of changed up exactly how we were doing it um, and and set into the system that we have now that uh, but it's been awesome. Um, so you don't own it, but you just basically com- you get like, commissions for bands you. Yeah, you it's eat with? what you kill scenario. Gotcha. You know, so I manage a handful of bands and that, that, under that, that's the umbrella. my clientele. Yeah, but we're all under the same umbrella. Yeah. Okay. So and is that, do you, you feel like that was kind of necessary to, you know, because, you know, that started to happen across the board with a lot of independent labels right. getting into more merchandising, mm-hmm. uh, starting booking agencies. Yeah, uh, and, I think and, the only way to, we, you know, the only way to really survive in this new climate is to like, you know, just you have to have multiple revenue streams. Yeah. You know, like it's so we just had to make sure like, you know, and service based stuff doesn't cost you money. It costs you time, you know, um, but I mean, yeah, it costs you some money. You know, you I mean, you, you don't have anyone working like underneath you like a day to day person or on the management side. Yeah. 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 I, I, I do. But, uh, you know, but that's not but that's like my cost. It's yes. my you know, that's my, you know, th- the other dudes don't handle that. Exactly. You know, it's the same thing like with the record label, like, you know, we've got staff, you know, uh, uh, Rick Barnhart, who's, you know, one of the oldest ferret employees. I mean, he basically runs the label for me. Um, Thanks, Rick. So, yeah, he's, you know, good looking at Rick. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it's, uh, no, it's a good setup now. It was, uh, it was definitely weird, you know, like at at first, just because it was kind of a, oh, look at this. Oh, snap. (laughs) You should, you should pick it up. Oh, yeah, all right. Put on speakerphone. Let's hear him. Oh, he only FaceTimes. Okay. What's up, buddy? <laughs> We're doing a podcast. How are you? Good, man. Up here, you know. So you got to talk into the mic. Put him on the oh. mic. Scott, say hi. Hello. It's, we got Scott Hello, Lee. You know, used to be from Massachusetts, and he sold out, you know, be, and became a hippie. <laughs> I, I, used to, I came back to Massachusetts. So oh, you're back? Really, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. You, you, you avoided the Antifa riots. I'm proud of you. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I'm safe. I'm safe in every Dude, if Scott was still out there, he you know, it wouldn't be five blocks of Seattle. He he would he would own all of Portland. He'd be running it. <laughs> it would be mine. Uh, it'd be on mine. Uh, you guys do your thing. Carl, call me back. Yeah, we're almost done. Yep, I'll I'll hit you back, brother. Doc, you're great. Let me I'll be on your podcast anytime you want. Let's do it, brother. Miss you, bro. Right. Talk to you soon. Miss you too. Awesome. Podcast See, I like that. Way. I like to have little little, little drop ins. It's like yeah. uh like Mr. Mr. uh not Mr. Robinson. <laughs> the dude Tom Hanks just did the movie for. I saw uh, that. I cried. Mr. Rogers. I'm, Mr. I'm, I'm doing Eddie Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Rogers. It is. It's quality drop in. Anyway, um, what, were we, what were we talking about? Uh, we're talking about just like kind of the overall setup of yeah. where, where we're at. But yeah, no, it's been, uh, you know, it, it was weird at first, you know, like just because I, I had to acclimate to it. But uh, it's a completely different job. Yeah, that's totally. And it's, but, uh, you know, and it's. But at a certain point, you can't have dudes that are bigger and better managers than me, like, you know, working for me, you know, like that. that yeah. You know, so like it's, well, and we, I think we've got a, we've got a really good setup and it's, you know. Who do you, who do you I, have, who do you deal with management wise? Uh, so I, I manage uh, 68, which is Josh from Chariots. I mean, I say new band, it's, you know, we're about to do their third album, um, which is just brilliant. Unearth, who are. You know, you know, I've known those dudes as long as I've known you. Um, uh, I managed the band Whores from Atlanta, which is kind of like a you know, noise rock metal thing. Very, very cool stuff. Um, Jason Sukoff, who's a producer. Varials. Uh, I just had Jason on the podcast. That's, he, he'll, he'll be coming up oh, yeah? before this episode, yes. I will definitely dig in. Um, and then Varials. Uh, 
uh, you know, younger band from Philly that are just fucking awesome. And uh, I work with the dudes from Oh Sleeper. So right on. And uh, and I just recently started working with uh, Craig Owens from uh, Chiodos oh, okay. and Drugs. Yeah, that was one of the things. Like we started right, really started ramping things up, and then. You know, we had all these plans for this year and then boom, the world ended and yeah. caught on fire. Well, I, I would say so. with, the, with the music industry, everything is just on pause. No one's, you know, it seems like we're all losing uh, momentum. We're just on, we're all, we all lost all the momentum. So that means yeah. no one's getting ahead. We're all just, yeah, stuck. Exactly. We're all exactly. just stuck in place, but hopefully things. And it's going to come back as soon as, it, you know, when, when, you know, the gloves come out, it's going to, it's going to come back fast. Dude, people are going to be so ready no to go to shows. It's yeah. going to be, it's going to be insane. Well, listen, brother, I, I really appreciate it. We got dogs waiting to hang out. So I think this is our cue to, 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 to wrap it up. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time. And uh, I think, you know, these are the, a lot of these questions that I'm asking you is literally stuff that, I've been fascinated with and interested with. So he's like, you're just kind of answering my questions. And I think a lot of people will kind of uh, be in my shoes and wanting to know yeah. a lot of these things. So no, it's, I, I greatly appreciate you doing it. And, uh, and you know, it was, it was fun and it's great to catch up and yeah. Uh, you know, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, it, doing stuff like this kind of, you know, it just reminds you like how, like, you know, we kind of live a surreal life, you know, yeah. like, you know, I'm not sitting in a cubicle selling something I don't give a shit about. Like, you know, like I'm super lucky that this is what my, you know, like if you told me when I put out that first Endeavor seven inch, that was like, Hey, later on when you're like, you know, 44 with a wife and a couple kids and a house, that's guys, still going to be what you're it's, doing. This is a nice house too. All right. This guy's got, <laughs> I mean, he's got, I mean, how many Porsches do you have that was no, all three or three or seven? I'm telling you, man, these guy, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but no, but listen, I think it's amazing. It's an incredible, uh, success story. And you're still doing it. You're still in in the game. And I, I love, you know, something I've kind of always lived my life by. And, and I see that kind of kindred spirit in a lot of people in the scene is just, like I said, taking those risks, not having uh, necessarily some great backup plan or, right. or, or, or doing something and not necessarily knowing what you're doing. And you just kind of figure it out. Uh, and it and if, you know, if you have enough kind of brains and adaptability yeah. in that um you know ability to learn and make mistakes and not get beat down and stay positive and surround yourself with people that you care about like you can actually make some really cool things happen yeah just it's i mean you look at i mean there's so many success stories in in music of dudes that like you know kids are always asking i was like oh you know i'm thinking about what i should study in college because i want to do what you do and i was like well i did go to college but some of the most successful people i know didn't you know like i mean you know, Anthony from E-Town. Yeah. Dude is absolutely fucking crushing killing it. it. You know, it. like he posted a photo the other day of some plants in his car and it was, you know, like, like, is that a fucking Rolls Royce? You know, like. <laughs> it is a Rolls Royce. It is. But yeah, you know. But like, then again, he did call himself Ant Money when he was like 16. That's true. It's true. So. That's, that's how I was introduced to him back in the day. It was, uh, he was predetermined. Yeah. But yeah, it's all, I mean, music's just great, whether it's on the artist side or record label side. I mean, you know, there's just so many people that have just, you know, you just get in there and that figured out a way to grind it out. Well, know? listen, I, I think I can speak for a lot of people uh, that appreciate what you've done. You've helped so many, you know, bring so much art and uh, these records and bands and music that we, that really shaped our lives, you know? So, and the fact that you're in the business of creating things, right? Yeah. Like, like that. And it's, it, you know, and that they, even though maybe, you know, the, the original label to some degree is defunct, 
but the legacy lives on those the albums live on yeah and that's really what's i mean that's one something that i've seen like i just did this thing will putney organized which was uh, yeah i was you on, were it. on it as well i mean that was amazing what he put together um and uh he was you know hit me up he was like hey would you want to be on it and i was like yeah i'd be honored to be on it but he was like yeah you know for you know for this raffle thing can you you know do you got any cool old ferret shit laying around and i was like yeah let me go dig around in the basement and uh you know the stuff that it, it was fun going back through and i was like holy shit i don't i mean the stuff down there that i didn't put in the raffle yeah. is extra crazy like it's it you know i have the test press at trust kill number one you know like <laughs> i was like shit i didn't know i had this um but yeah so it's it's it was cool to go through all the old ferret stuff and kind of be reminded of like oh shit these are these were really awesome records and by people that you know like had a huge impact on my life that i got to work with Right on, brother. Well, thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate Definitely. it. Thank you.
So that track was entitled The Goddamn Champion, and it is from Nora's 2003 album. I have to look it up. Uh, Dreamers and Dead Men. Uh, I think believe it's the opening track, and it's a it's a banger. And you know, listen, I hope you guys enjoyed that show with Carl. It was a long one, but I do feel like certain interviews, you kind of just got to go for it and tell the whole story. And it and it requires that kind of level of depth to at least satisfy my curiosity. So I definitely thank Carl so much for being so gracious, taking the time, inviting me in his home. Uh, it was a very, very good time. I'm loving it. I'm, I'm doing a lot of really great interviews. I I, I kind of have an announcement right now. So if you kind of made it this long, you're going to get a little Easter egg that, that other people don't, don't know. I got an interview with Peter Dolving from the haunted. We did it the other day. It's some serious shit. I think it's a uh, definitely can't miss. And, and he's a guy I've been trying to get since I started the show. So I got him coming up. I've got Beaker, AKA John Alcalt, the bass player from God forbid coming up. I'm talking to Full Metal Jackie this week. I have an interview with Ro Coley from Machine Marketing. So I got a lot of stuff on the the horizon, but I'm also really want to focus on writing original music. And so I have all these ideas for people to speak with on the podcast. So I'm kind of like kind of weighing myself so I'm not overburdened with other work because I want to write. So Anyway, guys, uh, I appreciate you checking out the show. Tell your friends, tell your mama, you know, post about the show. Do what you can. All right? I need all help I can get. All right. Anyway, love you guys. Mama out. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.